Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Nashi podcast or the podcast about Paul Nashi's film. Uh, I'm Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And uh, this time around we're going to usher into view for everyone and ourselves as well. Horror Rises from the Tomb. This is a fantastic film and one of my favorites from his over. And it's one of his more subtle, understated, quiet films. No, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> no, kidding, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, I think one of the reasons that we decided to go with this film for the uh, for our second outing was because this was your first encounter with Paul Nashie. It was. And uh, probably for our third outing, we'll go with my first encounter with Paul Nashie just to keep things even. Yeah. This is a this is a film that has a lot going for it. It is what I've referred to as a kitchen sink horror film in that it has just about a little bit. It's got a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. which is I think one of the one of its uh, one of its best aspects. I think it's wonderful in that respect. Horror Rises from the Tomb was uh, released in 1972, at least in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that's when it was released. Well, yeah, it's it kind of depends on the. The sources you read, I've seen both 72 and 73 reference, which makes me think okay. that it was probably filmed primarily in 72 as far as when it actually made its way around, you know, the theaters, possibly 73, but I've noticed there seems to be a little conflict about the, uh, about year, you know, whether it was 72 or 73. Okay, okay, yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing 73 reference, so maybe it was a 73 film, although... Uh, like I say, in some references, it does okay. say 72. Does. Yeah. Uh, the reason I referenced 72 is because of the magazine I, re- I mentioned last time, uh, Videos, mm-hmm. has it listed along with several other films as a 72 film. Well, and so does the uh, Nashi, uh, the great Nashi website, The Mark of Nashi, has it listed right. 72. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm betting it came out in, in, in Europe and other places in 72, may have not hit right. the, the U.S. shores until 73. Now, this is one, unlike Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, a.k.a. The Mark of the Wolfman, this is a film that does not really have any other title. The closest you get to some alternate titles on this one, the title is Horror Rises from the Tomb, or its Spanish equivalent. It was also referred to as Horror from the Tomb uh-huh. for a USA release, and there was a video release title in the States marking it, or calling it, Mark of the Devil 4, Horror Rises from the Tomb. I'm assuming they were. It was one of those many attempts to link, uh, yeah, to, to tie in with the Mark of the, of the Devil and Mark of the Devil Two, right, right, for no good reason. But there you go. Well, my theory about that is 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 that probably try as hard as they could, they really probably couldn't come up with a better title than Horror Rises from the Tomb. Because think about it. Yeah. If you're looking for a title to pull in horror audiences, it's one of the best ones. Unless you were just going to call it Nudity and Blood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nudity and blood and bloody murder. You know, if you're, unless you're going to go that far, then really horror. <laughs> can you get a better title than horror? No, no, no. no. What, what other What other title do you need? Yeah, anyway, right. uh, so horror rises from the tomb. Now, uh, luckily, this is one of the Nashi films that we do have a really good DVD available of. Yes, uh, this one's actually been released on DVD a couple of times in the states. Uh, I'm not sure about other territories. the The DVD we'll be referencing is simply the BCI release uh, that came out. I think now two or three years ago. Fantastic DVD with the uh, the unclothed, the uncensored print of the film, looking gorgeous. A beautiful, yes, beautiful print of the is. film that uh, also has uh, some nice extras. Uh, top among those, I think, is a, a fantastic subtitled commentary track with mm-hmm. Carlos Alred, the director, Paul Nashi, and a moderator, uh, which is uh, very, very good and is really helpful to kind of get an idea of what uh, was running through their heads and 
what they were thinking of doing as they made the film. A really precious item now that both men are actually deceased. Carlos Howard passed away uh, maybe about a year and a half before Nashie did, yeah. and um, they, they recorded two audio commentaries for this one and for another movie, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, and these right. are great to have because both men are no longer with us. And this one, this one's really juicy. This one's very mm-hmm. nice, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very glad to have been able to go through it again. Okay, the film is uh, unique in a few ways in Nashie's monster films or his horror films. Mainly because with this one, he created his own monster yet again, and it's a monster he only used one more time. Right. We'll get to we'll and get in to a very that. interesting and very different way. In a very interesting and different way, yes. Now, uh, this film begins as so many of these films do in the in the in the past. Starts out in I think what is roughly uh, the 1600s. Or fourteen fifty four. Fifteenth century. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not quite sure France, because I yeah. think they say a couple of different things depending on mm-hmm. what you're paying attention to. Right. And uh, we have this pre-credit sequence that gives us the execution of Alric Demarnac. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alric Demarnac, who is an evil sorceress. Sorcerer. Or I'm sorry, evil sorcerer. We're going to change his gender for him. Uh, evil sorcerer who has been who has been sentenced to uh, to death. Along with his uh, female cohort, of course, Demarnac is played by Nashi, and his female cohort is played by the luscious Helga Linné. Mm-hmm. And her name is the the actual name of the sorceress uh, sorceress this time is uh, Mabille de Lancre, I believe is how they say her name, Mabille de Lancre. Yes, indeed. Uh, they take they wheel them out on a cart into the French countryside, quote unquote, the French countryside, and uh, lop off Nashi's head and uh, string the naked. Uh, sorceress mm-hmm. upside down from a very pict- picturesque tree and uh, kill her right and uh the uh people who are executing her or the noblemen who are in charge of executing these two evil sorcerers one is uh andre roland oh uh, andre roland and uh hugo de marnac actually the hugo de marnac is the brother of Alaric de Marnac, who is the evil sorcerer that's being executed here. And just before his head is lopped off, he does, of course, curse them. Curse them, of course. You know, it's amazing how they always give these people time to do this, you know. It's, it's, yeah, they yeah, gotta yeah. know it's coming, but they always <laughs> give them time to spout out these these curses. Uh, and by the way, I have to say, um, my first complaint with the film is, uh, now, did you did you pay, did you just watch the subtitle, or did you did you watch any of the dubbed version as well, or did you pretty much I watched a little bit. Of, I watched a little bit of the dubbed version, just to jump just around get a and get a, get, a, the, get a... Oh, yeah. no, 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 no. Um, uh, I see what you're saying. Uh, I watched the 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 English language dubbed version mm-hmm. first, and mm-hmm. then I sampled a little bit of the uh, the Spanish language. Right. Um, uh, why? What's the? We just, I was just going to say. Um, I think that in for the most part, I like the voices. I did not really care for the voice. Oh, the dubbing. Yes. I did not really care for the voice that dubs Paul Nashie's. I did care, not. Did not. Didn't care for the voice that dubbed uh, Alaric Demarnac this time. I didn't really care for his. Uh, well, I didn't have as much trouble with uh, Demarnac's voice as I did with. Hugo's voice, the modern day character played okay. by Nashi, but okay. we'll we'll get to that yeah. because yeah. I just I, I don't think the voice quite fits as well mm-hmm. as it should. But yeah. and something else uh, uh, that I thought was interesting about this intro here, um, and again, this all takes place. You know, you get this whole beheading and, and and stripping nude and execution. This is all before the opening credits, which pretty much tells you what where you're we're in going. For. Yeah, uh, I thought it was interesting that that uh, a little just a little tidbit here that um, when they're reading the charges against the evil sorcerers, yeah. And they say, you know, accuse them all the usual things. You know, you're torturers, you're Satanists, you're vampires, you're lycanthropes. They call, they they say that they're werewolves. You know, it says lycanthropes in the dubbed version. It says werewolves in the subtitle version. We see no evidence the whole rest of the film that they are werewolves other than the fact that they're affected by silver, which, of course, vampires in some mythology are as well. But I thought it was interesting that Nashi would 
throw that in there that they're also werewolves because in every other case that I can think of, werewolves are always a, a creature of sympathy it, True. for Nashi or a creature that is enthralled to something else, but this may be the only case that I can think of right off of, of a werewolf being if they you know, being referenced as a purely evil character. I thought that was kind of interesting that he threw that, that he in there. Yeah, I see what you're saying, and I also wonder if that was something just thrown in because Nashi was Nashi. And that's possible. Or is it something that he meant to... Uh, and I don't know if this is the point where we should choose. I don't know if this is the right point where she should mention the case, the, the, the circumstances the script was written in. I don't know well, if this is something Matt Nashi meant to actually play a part in the story later, and it didn't turn out that way. Or like you said, it could be actually an, a, a sort of a nod to. I don't think so. I think that it pro- it plays as just a little bit of a nod toward mm-hmm. the Dendinsky character and the mm-hmm. the fact that at that point he's already played a Wolfman a right, few times. Right. But to to your point about how the script was written, I think that. Soon after, just immediately after we jump through the credit sequence and get to the modern day portion of the story, which is where the movie takes place, mm-hmm. once we get to the to the contemporary story and are introduced to uh, the descendant of Demarnak, Hugo, mm-hmm. that's where I think so, soon after that you start seeing the jumble of ideas that really does come from mm-hmm. how kind of strangely this script came together. Right. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and talk about that because. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melina has made absolutely no bones. Nash has made no bones at all about telling the story about how he wrote this screenplay, which was that he really didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. Producers called him up. Mm-hmm. He gave the, he spouted out the idea of a sorcerer having his head cut off and getting it reattached mm-hmm. at some at some point or somehow. Mm-hmm. And they said that's fine. When can, when can you have the script ready for us? Mm-hmm. And they needed it really quickly. The story's very either one day or two days, regardless, it was an incredibly short period of time. And right. so Nashi tells, says flat out that he just got himself hopped upon amphetamines mm-hmm. and stayed awake and just wrote the thing in a blinding flash. Mm-hmm. His wife thought he was going to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure how long it took him to, to calm down after mm-hmm. he after he got through with the process. But nevertheless, the, sto- the, the script got written. It was accepted. And uh, Carlos Allred has said that uh, all that they really had to do with the script past that was to add some dialogue yeah. as they were filming, yeah. uh, and apparently the actors kind of helped with that, you know, making the making the dialogue a little bit more smooth here, there, and yon. Right. So that 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 obviously worked out quite well. And uh, one of the things that I found impressive about that commentary track was how pleased, even at that late date when they recorded yes. this track, that all read was with the script. Yes, and its progression, its right. through line, and the way it moved from right. thing to thing to thing in kind of an organic right. fashion. And by the way, Carlos Carlos Allred was the first choice for direct. It was Leon Klamowski, and that's a name right. that we'll certainly be referencing uh, in future Nashi cast. Carlos Allred, Allred was Leon Klamowski's Klamowski's assistant, and uh, because Klamowski already had other obligations, he recommended Allred to do the job. So it's Carlos Allred's first film, and both Carlos Allred and Leon Klamowski. Uh, we'll definitely see turning up in future Nashi cast because they both made several films with Paul Nashi. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to find a bad one between the two of them. So, sure. what we have here is uh, we we jump to contemporary day France, where we're introduced to Hugo, played by Paul Nashi, who uh, comes to visit his friend Maurice, who is a painter. Mm-hmm. Maurice is being uh, is 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 wrapped up in a, a particular canvas that he's been working on for some time. He he has an idea of what he wants there. The painting's unfinished. We see it, and it doesn't really look much of anything. Maurice gets carted off out of his place to go uh, back to Hugo's apartment. 
uh, on some pretext. And, well, he and, basically tells him he's gold girlfriend. His girlfriend yeah. is back in town. His girlfriend Paula, who is a uh, journalist apparently in Germany, and and, uh, and she's in town visiting. She's Maurice's girlfriend, and so he goes trying to get him to get away from his paintings and come here and, and see his you know hang out with him. see his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And hang and, out uh, with, uh, I, I have uh, to I have to be I have to be, I have to I have to say I was amazed by. <laughs> he walks in, sees her, and there's absolutely nothing said. The two of them just come together, start mm -hmm. making mm -hmm. out, and Hugo and his obvious live-in girlfriend mm -hmm. just see that they're obviously making out heavily, and they just leave the room yeah. quite. Quite yeah. <laughs> carefully, quite nicely, and with with no with no words of any type whatsoever, and then we have a nice little dissolve, and then uh, Maurice and his girlfriend are obviously redressing themselves. They apparently just threw down and had sex right there in Hugo's living room, as far as I can tell. Europeans don't mess around. <laughs> well, you, you got to give them credit. I mean, hey, and take a look at Paula. Yeah, hey, a pretty true, true. pretty little blonde. I mm -hmm. can understand. Mm -hmm. Now at this point, I the the four the four friends the two couples are sitting around, and once again, much like in Mark of the Wolfman, mm -hmm. we have Nashi's character describing himself at well describing himself in less than flattering ways. Mm -hmm. He describes himself to his girlfriend as an egotist, explaining mm -hmm. kind of why he feels that she that they wouldn't be right together to get to marry to get married because mm -hmm. she would doesn't really have the temperament to put up with him. Right, and he, right. he kind of comes off once again as a mm -hmm. jerk. Right, and but a, a, at least a self-aware jerk. Right, so. and it's interesting that at the same time, Maurice uh, makes certain references to how he doesn't think Paula's going to give up her job as a will ever get away from her job as a journalist. It's kind of a parallel between the two couples. Yeah, that Maurice seems to to want more of Paula's time than she can give, and and Sylvia doesn't get from Hugo what she wants. So it's kind of an interesting just sort of contrast between them. I think. Very interesting. Yeah, it doesn't seem like either one of these relationships is something that mm -hmm. anybody involved in them thinks is really going to last. Mm -hmm. A bizarre aside, but something kind of neat to add to the mix of the exactly. story. Exactly, yeah. So, we have... Uh, I can't remember which one of the, the, the ladies brings up their, their friends who are involved in uh, seances. Um, right off, I don't either. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think it was Paul. At any rate, uh, we next have introduced uh, these two characters who... Conducts seances. Who claimed uh, the the female claims to be a medium, mm -hmm. and they quickly convince the four of them, the four friends, to uh, indulge them in a seance. Now Hugo really only goes along with this. Hugo's having none of it, mm -hmm. and really is only going along because he he thinks he can debunk it. He can mm -hmm. make fun of it, and he can he can point out that they're full of crap and just mm -hmm. kind of have fun with it in that direction. But they sit down. They have the they have a little seance. You have to kind of be impressed because. The, the table moves and, and floats, and Hugo obviously is looking around trying to figure out how they're pulling this crap off. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, lo and behold, the, the medium does speak. Now, before we get to this, we should we, we should also mention that Hugo did bring up uh, his ancestor, Alaric de Marnock, mm -hmm. who he's like, well, I, you know, I've always thought, hey, well, if, we could, if we could contact him, that'd be great. Right. And apparently be uh, there's some... Uh, this legend of some hidden treasure, hidden gold, mm -hmm. somewhere on the uh, family estate, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere on the lands. And hey, if he could tell me where that is, that'd be great. Yeah. All, of course, part of his desire to kind of debunk this whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but as the seance progresses, we have Demarnak <laughs> show up. Yeah. I mean, and pretty quick too. Yeah. This is the <laughs> this is the weird thing to me. I you know I, I didn't put a stopwatch on it, but it does appear as if. If it were this easy, why didn't they do it sometime sooner? Because it mm -hmm. takes less than sixty seconds to get to get old Demarnak <laughs> hovering over the hover, hovering over the scene and spouting info. Yeah, they they didn't even get the incense lit yet. I think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there was no, there was no call. No, nobody passed the 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 bucket around looking for cash yet or anything. So 
what we have here is uh, some information. The monarch passing through some passing some information through the through the medium, and the seance getting broken up. And the, if I remember correctly, in, in the uh, the medium kind of shaken up by this situation. Yeah, we never really hear what happens to her. She uh, she really passes out, and and then right. Hugo, which he still just leaves him skeptical because he makes some comment about. That they, oh, he still they, thinks it's crazy. Yeah, he yeah. says, "Notice how quickly they got her out there." Where the other, the other, the Paul and Sylvia are more concerned about what kind of shape she's in. And he said, "No, you notice how quick they got her out." He said, "I, you know," he said, "We just didn't find out how they were faking it, but they had to be faking it." By the way, we need to mention that Maurice did not go to this séance because something interesting happens with him while That's they're having true. a séance. That's true. You're right. I forgot. Maurice is not at the séance, but while it's going on, or at least in its direct aftermath, we cut to him mm-hmm. back at his place painting. And it's that same painting that's been bugging him. He says mm-hmm. he's, he's had some kind of image in his head that he can't get out. And really quickly, as, after the seance, he, very lightning quick, as far as the film is concerned, paints the, the full image. Mm-hmm. And the image is this gorgeous painting of Alaric de Marnac, beheaded, mm-hmm. but holding up his own severed head in his right, right hand. Beautiful image, and and obviously points to the fact that there was more to this seance than Hugo or anybody mm-hmm. else would like to think, possibly. So we have right. We yeah, have was very it Alec, quickly. Was it Alaric Demarnak's head or was it Hugo's head? That well, he paints? that's the yeah. Which is kind of it's kind of interesting yeah. what happens or going with the rest of the scene. Well, and and that's just it because as far as Maurice knows at this point, it's Hugo's face. Right. And he, when he pulls himself back and sees the finished painting and really kind of seem, comes out of what seems to be a trance in mm-hmm. which he painted it freaks out and destroys the canvas. Mm-hmm. And what he attacks is the face. And the face is his friend Hugo's face. Keep that He's in not, mind. Yeah, yeah, keep that in mind. Okay, so Maurice is obviously very upset about this vision he's had, and Hugo makes a suggestion, even though he still doesn't believe one of the seance, just as a means of getting Maurice away, uh, feeling that you know they, they all need to go somewhere. And he just says, well, why not take a trip to my family land, my estate, my family grounds, and let's see if we can find this this alleged head of uh, Alaric de Marnac and dig it up and and of well, course this uh, is the point they're, where at that point they're actually talking about the gold which that's is true, that's which true. is what they're which that's is what true. they're thinking yeah. they're going to be looking for and uh, that is really what they think they're going to find yeah. and what it what it boils down to is what the during the séance the information that was given out was that uh, that the stuff is hidden on the grounds of a monastery on the ancestral lands yeah, is that the head is like buried and, and it's separate from the body, you right? Know, right. The, the, the body and head were, kept, were buried the, separately to keep mm-hmm. him to keep him from reconstituting or keep him from Truth. from Truth. coming back. So what we have here is Hugo essentially just making this suggestion: let's all go out there and do that as, as kind of a help to as, as kind of a help to Maurice. Yeah. So so essentially just wanting to do this to to check the uh, to check out the claims to to his mind mm-hmm. put an end to this whole idea that this that there was something to these people giving the right, seance right. and also to because they can to, see how it's just dis- disturbing Maurice even more and right it's, I think so this this will put an end to that right. crap and we can bury this idiocy and move mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. so they take their they take their trip out there into the countryside actually up into the uh, it looks like the mountains to me it's a very beautiful landscape mm-hmm. uh, we should make mention of the fact that the film was was shot uh, during uh, I can't remember if it was early or late winter it was damn cold. It was damn did. cold, but the thing is, it, uh, the, it this helps the look of the film yeah, immensely. Very much. Not that not that it's uh, it's a not that it's there's a snowy vista. There's not snow mm-hmm. on the ground or anything like that. Although several at several points in the film, the snow is flying. You see you see yes. snow in the air, and it does add a really oh, nice yeah, feeling nice. to what's and going. on. You do on. have some like snowy mountains just way back in the background. Right, but right. The, uh, it's, it's it's a beautiful landscape, yeah. even though a lot of the foreground stuff is very bleak right mm-hmm. out in front mm-hmm. of the the home mm-hmm. and everything. 
But they, they take a drive up into the mountains, and on the way there, they have a little accident and run into a band of, well, they run into some criminals mm-hmm. who are chasing some other criminals right. to make them pay for having mm-hmm. been traitorous to the criminals that have caught up with them. Uh, it's not as confusing as it sounds, folks, but it boils down to our, our four friends witnessing two, two, two or three criminals taking uh, vengeance, one with a shotgun and one by hanging on a couple of traitorous, <laughs> traitorous criminals. It's a pretty harsh thing, and it really does kind of draw... It, it's our first indicator, first from the look of the criminals, mm-hmm. because although we're in, we're in you know, modern-day, quote-unquote, 20th century, and these guys are sporting shotguns of, mm-hmm. of, a, of a fairly modern variety... These guys, the way they're dressed and the way they're acting, really does feel like something out of maybe the previous century. Yeah, and Hugo, even before all this happens, he makes a little reference to you know that that some people still live the way they did centuries ago up here, and and this is something that I think we'll see again popping up in a lot of Nashi films is this kind of conflict between old and new world. I think it's one of the right. more interesting things, uh, themes in Nash's films that, that pop up a lot. These this scene of these of modern people going running afoul of of you know, a sort of older ways. Right? I think I think that's part. I think that is part and parcel of a of a section of his personality. Something within mm-hmm. his psyche that I agree. He 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 grew up in a he grew up in a country where the past is always there, kind mm-hmm. of hovering over the present. And not to make too much of this, well, but I think you're right. It does show up again and again in a lot of his stories, mm-hmm. because what you have is a man who was. Constantly trying to push the boundaries of certain things, wanting to break taboos and mm. and 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 um, bust away from the censorship that mm. was placed upon him as a storyteller, but at the same time, really had his feet firmly planted in the past because of his upbringing, because of the way he well, the way he was raised. Yeah, I agree totally because I thought about this too. I think it's uh, I think he's that's why he's the perfect per, you know was so perfect for these kind of stories is because I think there's this conflict. You're right. He's there's the artist in him that's at war with sort of the older maybe traditionalist you know that's or so it's why his characters you know he has this yeah. kind of tension between his modern his characters his sort of sophisticated characters but also his his old world characters and his and, his, and, his, and you, and you see the life. clash sometimes and I yeah. often wonder if he ever became aware yeah. that that existed within him I don't know mm-hmm. uh, I, I've never seen him directly address that right. in interviews uh, even from the later years and I'm kind of curious if, if there's just something that I've missed mm-hmm. but it, it, it does it is something that crops up again and again mm-hmm. but to, to get back to get back to the mm-hmm. film, their encounter with these criminals is, has also resulted in the accidental demolishing of, I think it's Maurice's car. Yes. And so uh, Hugo flashes a nice wad of cash, purchases a, a, an old mm-hmm. clunker from the criminals, so they can get to, they can finish their journey up the up to the house. Uh, you just you just know that's going to come back to haunt him sometime oh, later on in the film, but uh, yeah. that's a that's a that's a slightly strange little tale as well. So they do finally make their way, the four of them do finally make their way to the ancestral homestead, the, the very nice home uh, up, up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And um, there we Which, are by the way, was actually Nashi, we should say, that yes. was actually on uh, fa- grounds in a home that uh, was in Nashi's family itself. And it, and it was the perfect perfect setting for what they needed to do. And, and very conveniently was, uh, made the film look like it had a more oh, yeah. above budget than it really had. Beautiful, beautiful place. And also, this was not the last uh, last that Nashi films sections of a movie in. They, right. This is not uh, this is not the last appearance of this home in one of his films. Right. But we get there and we're introduced to three more characters: the caretaker and his two daughters. Yes, Gaston is the caretaker. Uh, one daughter is Elvira, played by Emma Cohen, and I don't know if we ever catch the name of the other daughter. I try. We to, I do. Do we? Is it? Yeah, we de- we definitely do catch the. Is it Chantel? Yes, thank you. That was it. Chantel. Chantel yes. And so we uh, we're introduced to the three of them. The two the two females are. Uh, 
quite pretty, obviously yeah. in their early to mid twenties and and quite attractive. Everyone gets settled in the house, and the next morning they all venture out to the uh, monastery grounds, employ a couple of locals with shovels and picks, and start digging to see if they can find this uh, yeah. this treasure, this mm-hmm. gold that's supposedly buried out. Hugo and Maurice, and I, I believe the girls are there, mm-hmm. and they're not. They're, they've obviously they've de- they've dug quite a few holes. Right, they've been looking, they've, looking. They've luck. been looking, looking. They've spent some time. They've not found anything useful. And Maurice, staring off into one area of the grounds, suddenly has a bizarre vision where he sees a a, a kind of pale red light over mm-hmm. one section of the ground. Right. And immediately has them start digging there, and lo and behold, in that spot, they do right. find a trunk. A, a cask, a chest right, of, right, yes. of some sort. It's locked. They try to pop the lock on it, can't quite get it done, and decide, well, let's just take it back to the house and we'll pop the lock off of it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's getting late, and this is obviously going to be harder than it looks. We're going to need to get a blowtorch to do this, right. so we'll just we'll put it off till tomorrow. So they take it home. Everybody get everybody goes to bed. Before they go to bed, actually, there's a neat little scene here where on the staircase, uh, Hugo and Maurice are, uh, are kind of saying goodnight to each mm-hmm. other. Um, we should we should state that uh, they're they're not running the generator in the house, so they're they're going by candlelight and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. lamplight, uh, oil lamplight, right there on the stairs. This neat little thing that just it's one of those little things in these films, not just Nashy films, but like you were talking about uh, in the in the previous podcast when we were talking about the little strange little asides that are in these European films, yeah. the strange little touches that don't need to be there, but that are so much a part mm-hmm. and parcel of why. If you're drawn to these films, you're really drawn to them. Right. And uh, he's standing on the staircase, and he he suggests uh, Hugo suggests to Maurice, "Hey, what if, what if, why don't we pull sheets over our heads and go up and scare the girls?" Mm-hmm. And Maurice <laughs> kind of goes, "Nah." And he goes, "Like, really? You don't want to? Well, all right." And it, and they go on up to bed, and that's the, that's the end of the scene. Yeah, yeah. It's it absolutely has mm-hmm. no need to be in the movie, mm-hmm. but it's just this neat little piece because it adds a, a little bit of playful character to Hugo. Yeah. Yeah. It demonstrates once again just a little touch of the fact that Maurice is taking this a little bit more seriously he's, he's the than Hugo. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's 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 really on his mind, and it's just it's just a neat little bit. And I really have to say that I love the acting on Nashi's mm-hmm. part he in did, this did. scene. Yeah, that's a good scene. He's it really, really good. It's this nice little subtle thing. He plays it exactly right, and it's just it's just nice, even in the dub. Mm-hmm. Even in the English dub, it plays very, very yeah, well. It is. It's a nice little scene. I liked it too. <laughs> I'm a big. Okay. I, it's such a small thing, but I just really, really like that scene. Anyway, we go. We we go to the next. Mo- well, we we don't get to the next morning because two of the people who helped who were helping them helping them dig that uh, cask up sneak into the the uh, out the outer outbuilding where they've mm-hmm. they've stashed the little chest. Right. right. Come with a blowtorch and. Melt the lock off of it. They mm-hmm. think, hey, if there's gold in here, we in here. here. Yeah, it's got to mm-hmm. be in here. This is worth mm-hmm. it. We're going to cut it open and get our cut. So they get the lock off of it, pop the cask open, and inside they find a. Well, first of all, let's say, let's state this up front. What they open it up to see is a big sheet of parchment paper that looks like it was you know rolled off a Xerox printer <laughs> the day to before. Say, it's not real authentic looking. No, <laughs> it's not very authentic looking at all. Um, th- but that but that's okay. You're willing. Like it has say, the word. As- it has the word Asteroth. Asteroth on it. With a with a with a very interesting image, um, mm-hmm. and you you see them reach up and pull the paper off, and then the 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 perspective shifts, and we're looking at them from essentially from inside the cask, as if yeah. we were either we're right behind the, the cask yeah. or right inside yeah. the cask. At this point, the caretaker comes in with a with with, mm-hmm. with a gun, has found them, has, mm-hmm. has discovered them. One, one, one of the one of them is turn one of them turns away and starts talking to the caretaker, trying to essentially talk mm-hmm. them out of the trouble that they're obviously in. 
but the one who's still caught staring directly at the camera, i.e. directly inside whatever is inside this box. His face is, is now lit in a red light, and he's in some type of trance. Yeah, it's obvious he has gone away mentally. He, while the other two are speaking, and the caretaker yes. is making it, making it obvious that he's going to contact the gendarmes and the jig mm-hmm. is up, the now somewhat possessed fellow reaches over, grabs a, a, a scythe. Sickle. Sickle, 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 yeah, I believe sickle is what they refer to it in the audio commentary, yeah, yeah. so I guess the best way to... And uh, proceeds to turn around and take matters into his own hands. Yes. Uh, kills the caretaker. And, uh, and I can't remember the exact, the exact way things happen, but essentially... Yeah, he kills, kills he kills Gaston first, kills Gaston. and then the other the other guy, the younger guy, who's who's there, who's who's been trying to break him, there with him, him says, yeah. "What's you know? He's what are you doing? What's going on?" And then he kills he kills him, him immediately. Well. So he kills both the caretaker and his cohort there. Right, right, right. And then he's still obviously in a trance, and and uh, and and he takes the trunk. Uh, the, the yeah, he p- he closes the trunk, picks up the trunk, and mm-hmm. leaves. Mm-hmm. Now I can't remember the exact the exact order in which things go. Well, the next, uh, uh, we immediately uh, cut to Elvira waking up uh, screaming because she's she's heard a, a noise and she's, she, it shows her, it's kind of, it's a little bit of an odd edit because she, she screams, which wakes up Sylvia. It shows, it, it's, it's Elvira's scream, but it's Sylvia that, that, that okay, first shows yeah. waking up, but Elvira is then shown pounding on the door, you know, waking people up because she's found her father's body. She's found Gaston's body. Right. She's, she's found his corpse and it's mm. not, um... Where did she find it? She, she didn't find it outside, did she? She found it, it. It doesn't really show, but well, I think it's somewhere outside because then um, Hugo and Maurice go to actually find the body, and they go they they go to that's where she's right, found the body, right. and they find the other. They find both bodies, mm-hmm. and uh, they do a very strange thing. I know what you're going to say because <laughs> that was. I would to me love too. an explanation for this next bit of activity in the film, and I don't think there is one. I have thoughts, but they're very they're clutching they're the ultimate clutching at straws. <laughs> uh, so okay, what they do is they bundle up both of these bodies and the next morning they take them out on the lake they're on the mm-hmm. they're on yeah. the lands mm-hmm. and dump the bodies the weighted bodies into the water yes for no damn good reason and, and whatsoever that I can figure out. Meanwhile, and all the women are all standing on the, the, shore, on the shore, dressed line. in their black. I love the fact that their yeah. girlfriends actually brought along their black morning dresses because I guess <laughs> if we're going to go vacationing, vacationing in a Paul Nashie film, yeah. you just bring along, you should bring along your black morning dress of just course, in case because there's probably going to be a body count. There's going to be but, a body count. There's going to be some. There's going to be some things going on. Now this lake is beautiful scenery. I don't blame them for using it, but it is a strange. I know it's like okay. Now here's okay. That, that, that's this is the first point in the film where you're like, what the fuck? where? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What in hell's name are you doing here? Yeah. What is this? Okay. Why are you doing this? Okay, the very next... Well, I'm going to go ahead to the next scene to suggest that possibly things could have been shifted in a little better order because the next scene has Maurice saying that he went into the village to try and get help for what's happened, you know, that they've just had two murders and that right. the villagers, nobody will talk to him. They treat him like, you know, an outsider. The kids threw rocks at him, he makes a mention of. That's right. Okay, so he says we're left to deal with this on our own. So if they had put that possibly before the scene of the barrel, it might explain the barrel. It still doesn't. I mean, why they just went ahead and buried the body? Now it still doesn't totally explain why they bury them in the lake. Well, they don't bury them. That's that's the weirder part to me. There's a part in this story that we'll get to that's why like dump one of the, them in the, the big, lake. One of the big twists or one of the big discoveries later in the story we'll get to. You know, Nashi says in the audio commentary that he sort of felt that this family came. He wanted this family to have come from imagine that they came from a Nordic background and so that's why they later will see that 
that plays very heavily into something that which is in. which is a neat idea, and but it, there's there's nothing leading to that. No, and it makes you you know no exactly. And yeah. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, well, okay, if he thought of them as a Nordic family, maybe this burial in the water has. But it seems like okay, why wouldn't they just put them on a boat and set it on fire? That seems to be well, like, I, I mean, it, it really doesn't go, make any, your Viking funeral. It really doesn't make any sense, and it's yeah. one of those things that's just fun to play with. But I don't think we'll ever truly know what was in his speed addled brain when he, uh, <laughs> when he came up with this. This uh, it, uh, it, it is an interesting idea you put forth yeah. there that perhaps the scene after. Afterwards, with Maurice talking about what happened when he went to go for help. Because what I like about this scene, what Maurice is saying, is, and it's, it's it's something we you know we've talked about clunky exposition mm. you know, dialogue, and it can be seen sort of as that. At the same time, these are scenes that, as we'll see as we go through this story, it's it's really one of the best paced Nashi films as far as just if you consider good pacing in the sense that you know it never there's there's never a lag and you know things just clip yeah. along. Uh, there's other ways to define good pacing, of course, and you know, but in this case. A lot of what Maurice is talking about is like, dude, would we really have needed to see the scenes of him going into town and doing this? It's not so bad to just hear him say it oh, in no, dialogue, no, no. but no, also no. the fact that he mentions that they're completely out of gas, you know, so they can't get. It's I think yeah, trying we, should, to we show, should we should address this at that point. This is where you yeah. start to realize that that what they're setting up is that these people are now isolated. Right. I think Nashi was really trying to, to right. make sure that that we you couldn't just sit there and say like, well, just get the fuck out of there. You know, just, yeah. just leave. Get, get, get you know, get out. Go go for the police. He's trying go to show that they the really are actually nearby. kind of trapped where they're at yeah. because the way they're treated in the town, the way nobody would come to their help, they can't get out of there. So so that so like I said, I think that scene itself plays nicely and maybe it would have been Well, he's already set that up mm-hmm. in, in, right before then or it may even be in this scene where um, they, he references the fact that uh, they have X amount of food, right, so they only right. have enough food for a few weeks. Exactly, and so that's 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 the point where you're starting to realize, okay, okay, so they're they're isolated. The, they, they they don't have fuel, they don't have any contact. There's no phones, so they mm-hmm. don't have a way to, to to easily contact the outside world. Mm-hmm. So we are essentially cut off in this place in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. Okay. Got you. Plus, occasionally, like I say, the weather works pretty well here because occasionally there are snow flurries, mm-hmm. and it is obviously quite cold. And so there's this 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 feeling of cold and isolation. Yeah, it works. It works very well. It really well. does. Okay, so we have everybody isolated off in this place, and we have uh, as you look around. I like to look around the cast at this point in time. And what we have are Hugo, Maurice, mm-hmm. and four female victims. <laughs> let's put yeah. it let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, we are we are talking about a horror film and we are talking about a Nashi film. So all four women are very attractive and very well in slightly different ways. I also uh, yeah this would be a good point to just to point out that you know remember again that this was filmed in in sub zero you know obviously freezing temperatures which didn't stop these women from wearing the shortest possible dresses imaginable. And just on behalf of all the males in the audience, I want to, to, to thank them for, uh, for their, for their suffering troopers. For yeah, for, for, yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, the mini skirts that Emma Cohen wears later on mm. in the film is definitely something that will live in infamy forever, mm. in my opinion. But anyway, what we have here is, um, we have our six, we have our six people in the house and that night we have, once again, we have the sickle, the sickle bearing possessed thief, uh, pop up in the house and uh, start stalk, start stalking around and manages to get hold of Chantel, the uh, the uh, first of the of the sisters, mm-hmm. and kills her. Through, slashes gets to her in the kitchen, slashes her throat, and uses the sickle to carve out her heart, leaving mm-hmm. her body draped across the, uh, the the chopping board there in the kitchen. Then, for some reason, we're not sure how, when her body is discovered, the body is is it's upstairs. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's now. A, it, it, um, 
<laughs> your your theory is that without her but heart, she she, she still managed to she climb up, you know. Up the you know. <laughs> no, I've I have no idea what what the if these women are hardy enough to wear as many skirts in the trump in the in the sub zero temperatures. They've got to be at least hardy enough to pull themselves upstairs without hearts. All know? hail <laughs> French women, and they're I'm obvious. Maybe they're just heartless to begin with, so it doesn't really matter if you remove the physical object. So anyway, oh, well, remember too before we before we actually find because it's Elvira that finds her body. Remember right. we have this little segment before the that that oh, well. uh, Paula goes. Correct. Paula goes Paula in the middle of this is right after right after Chantel is killed. Uh, Paula gets up and basically goes exploring in what I call you know the uh, classic uh, Gothic uh, women uh, exploring castle gear, which is a see through nightgown and a candle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she's wearing uh, she's wearing this sheer see through gown, mm. brawn panties. Mm-hmm. For you know, I mean, to be somewhat demure, I suppose, and uh, yeah, goes wandering around the place and, and, and candle, and she's grabbed by, um, she's actually grabbed by the sickle, the sickle, sickle carrying the, the thief, sickle thief. After he's killed Chantel, he grabs her, and that's, and then we switch to Elvira has also gotten up, and she's the one who discovers her sister's body. Uh, really, basically trips over it on the stairs on and the sends stairs. the body tumbling down to the, and you know, and wakes up the household with her screaming that she's found. Yeah, like I say, I have no idea how the body got there, considering she was killed and obviously just draped over the <laughs> over the sideboard there in the kitchen. But so anyway, we're uh, we we uh, at this point we don't know what the deal is with the heart ripping. Right, right, right. We Why did he remove mm-hmm. Chantel's heart? Soon, soon thereafter, Paula reappears. And I'm, if I'm skipping something you want to talk about, just tell me. Go ahead. You but say that. It's, well, it's when Paula it's, reappears yeah, right. and essentially she lures pos- she lures Maurice and essentially possesses him. Yeah, because Maurice she calls to him in one of the few right. scenes, one of the few times in the film that it actually uses a something of a more fantastical atmosphere rather than the more stark, bleak realism to kind of offset everything. Is usually when Paula now appears. There's kind of a fog and a little bit of a right. dreamlike atmosphere, and it's really well. It's, it's used that kind of thing is used again later on. But go ahead. Yeah, and and to lure Maurice away, and I think that it's it's interesting. It's nice the way that the characters are set up that way because we've already been set up to know that Maurice's emotional attachment to Paula is much stronger than Hugo's attachment to Sylvia. Because at the same right. time this is going on, Hugo is visiting Elvira. Looking at first like he's coming to comfort her because you know of all she's been through, she's basically already becoming a wreck. Nothing compared to what yeah, she's I mean, her, her, her sister. She just discovered her sister. Now her sister body. and her father are dead. Yeah. Um, but through their conversation, we realized that they actually back when he lived on this estate as a, as as a as a youngster that they were they were young lovers and and had loved each other all these years. And now this is this is something. The only hint we've had of this so far at all is the first time that they've come when they first come to the estate. You know, it kept cutting to Elvira, and we see her casting apprehensive looks around, but we don't really know if it's... We, we still don't really know that she's going to become more of a major character. At this point, her character suddenly takes another le- kind of a leap forward in importance because we suddenly realize that Hugo is still really attached to her, and it kind of explains his... Maybe possibly explains some of his inability, possibly, to connect with to Sylvia. Connect with, well, to connect with anyone else. Or anyone and, else. And, 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 and as the film plays out, that, that, that seems to be probably what he's aiming mm-hmm. for, which is mm-hmm. the idea that Hugo really does love this girl, but right. I'm, and this is only hinted at. Mm. Yeah, sure. But maybe that because she was the daughter of a servant, mm-hmm. this was mm-hmm. a kind of forbidden thing, which yeah. is why he would maybe try to continue to hide this particular relationship. Mm-hmm. Like I say, this isn't something that's brought yeah, out in the yeah, dialogue or anything other than just little hints yeah. of the obvious relationship between the two of them. I mean, yeah. the caretaker's daughter, Gaston's mm-hmm. daughter, the caretaker's daughter, and the point. son of the family that owns this huge estate, right. obviously from wealth. 
And the fact that, and again, the fact that Maurice is so much more obviously emotionally connected to Paula, it makes sense that you know she's able to lure him away, mesmerize him into to away from everybody else and, and to her because it's obvious by now that Paula has become something other than who she was when she appears after last being seen hauled away by by one of, one of the the thralls of the of the the evil sorcerer. You know that 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 she is now obviously something's happened with her, and she's pulling Maurice away. You know, at this point, they uh, they grab Sylvia and haul her out to the monastery. Sylvia, who is uh, seen preparing a meal, and I love the little wiping off the preparing little spot of blood uh, where, uh, where, where, the, where where Chantel where... had been killed. She's like <laughs> spitting out this meal on this table where this girl just had her heart cut out, and she notices, oh, there's a little spot we didn't get, and oh, dabs and away. Wonderful, that. wonderful touch there. Well, but it. then again, you have to think that maybe she didn't know that that's where the woman was killed in the first place because they this find her body they on, the find her on the stairs. stairs. Good anyway. point. Maybe they didn't. Yeah. So at, at, at any rate, I mean, that could have been you know rabbit's blood or whatever the hell that. I don't know. Anyway, so the possessed Paula lures Maurice out, obviously possesses him or affects his possession in one way or another. Right. They grab Sylvia and venture out to the monastery mm-hmm. where we discover the box, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the sickle, mm-hmm. the sick, the sickle wielding thief is there as well. And they place the, 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 the box they dug up on this little pedestal mm-hmm. And uh, open it up, and lo and behold, there's mm. Alaric de Marnac. Yes, for the head. first time we see we what see we figured what was, was in there anyway, but now we know it's the head of Alaric de Marnac. And it's obvious that this uh, beheaded sorcerer is controlling the situation and trying to set about trying to set about his own resurrection. They crack open Maurice, the possessed Maurice, and uh, the thief crack open these two. Uh, to my mind, fairly obvious spots, mm-hmm. drag out the, the two coffins in which uh, DeMarnak's body and, and, uh, the, the, yeah, yeah, and, and her, where his companion, his cohort, the sorceress's body are, are contained. Yeah. Uh, the I, f- I found it very interesting that DeMarnak's body has not deteriorated and this right. the, 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 that it's not deteriorated at all, but the woman's body is skeletal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, at any rate, they... Uh, they the head gets reattached to the body, in a very neat scene, by the way. The the uh, they they there's not just the uh, they do they do use a fake head, mm-hmm. but uh, it starts off with the shot of you know what's very obviously Nashy there, and they 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 affect the picking up of the head, and then the, they you see the head moving. It's very obviously the fake disembodied head, yeah. and then there's that wonderful shot where yeah. they where they very carefully they very carefully set the shot up so that it's it's. Once again, his head, as it's tilted and brought down into the box, where you see his eyes looking up move. at him, yeah, obviously yeah, in control yeah. of what's going on, and then situate the head on the shoulders, mm. and then we have the whole scene where the, the neck, re, you know, the neck mm. uh, seals itself up and reattaches to the body. Absolutely brilliantly done. They did not need that extra little shot. No, but it's they could a great have gotten touch. away without mm. that extra little touch. But it is such a great. It's a great little detail. It's just mm. so nice. So we have uh, we have um, the evil Demarnac mm. resurrected. Mm-hmm. Looking oh so sinister. Oh, yes. The, the, yeah. the, the, the thing is the, that Nashi with a beard mm-hmm. always looks nicely evil and sinister. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming that this was a, a fake beard. This was makeup, of course, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the Lord knows they didn't have enough time for him to mm-hmm. you know, be completely clean-shaven to play Hugo and then yeah. grow, you know, grow this beard to, to mm-hmm. play to Marnak. But the, um, the effect is well done. He's resurrected. Mm-hmm. And then we realize why they brought Sylvia along. And did not possess her as they lay her in on another amazing scene. Yeah, in another amazing scene where they lay Sylvia on top of the skeletal sorceress, cut her throat, mm-hmm. and have her blood and 
have her blood essentially resurrect Helgel and a sorceress. Yeah. yeah. Just a scene that's uh, it's disturbing and, 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 and gruesome and erotic and all those. And, and it's just a very... Uh, and a lot national, of things in between, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and it's something that, again, I, you know, I think was a, a very original way of... I mean, so many films we've seen when they're resurrecting a vampire, they cut somebody's throat and drip blood over it. In this case, they lay the body down and then Alaric de Marnac lies on top of the nude... On yes. Sylvia's body, with the, the skeleton underneath him in this, in this, in the real sort of gruesome menage a trois kind of, you know, I know it's thing. bizarre. And then uh, when he, and then he gets up, and we see that Sylvia's body's become a skeleton, and and then beneath it is Mabille de Lancre back in the flesh, right. and it's uh, it's very, it's it's it's, it's and again one of the examples that. Nashi obviously has a lot of homages to the films and things he loves in, 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 in his movies and his scripts, but he's he's very much a, a a thinker of his own, you know, his own touches. I mean, he brings his own thing to these to these films so much of the time. And this is one of those scenes where, um, if the the film could, this film could be a lot worse than it is, mm-hmm. and still have a couple of scenes like this one, yeah, which is completely dialogue free, mm-hmm. is pure cinema, nothing yeah. but images, yeah, and just be still well worth seeing. Right. This is one of those sequences in, in, in film, in horror film, especially from this time period, that I think you could convince almost anybody. Just take this scene completely out of the film, out of context, and show someone this sequence, mm-hmm. and they would probably want to see the rest of the film. If they're a horror fan at all, this sequence would sell them on watching the entire right. movie. Right. Yeah. This is, this is, this is magic. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of thing that people working in a genre that they love mm-hmm. come up with this mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that you get yeah so yeah. so we we ha- we have the we have the two evil sorcerers resurrected they have their we have um thralls enthralled slaves at this point and very quickly um hugo and elvira are suddenly completely alone i mean in just a space of just just like that they're, they are now suddenly reduced to it's just the two of them right yeah so we have once again that sense of isolation playing into it, and we have time passing. It's uh, the the next the next oh, day rolls around. Oh, the last thing we see in this whole resurrection, this incredible resurrection sequence, is uh, then uh, to top it all off, Maurice goes over then and just kills the. Uh, goes ahead and dispatches the possessed, the first thief that they possessed that carried the sickle yeah. around. Okay, it's obvious that he's now he's served his purpose. So Maurice well, right. Maurice grabs the sickle, kills him, cuts out his heart. And brings it to the 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 evil sorcerer and sorceress, and and that's obviously what they're you you know they they to, to feed off of. This is uh, a, this is apparently how the two of them maintain their unnatural mm-hmm. lives. Now, right. interesting that this is never spelled out. This is no. never talked about right. in either version of the film. It's not mm-hmm. talked about right. uh, about why you know why the heart eating. What mm-hmm. what does this have to do with? Mm-hmm. This is just one of those neat little things that Nashi assumes if he presents it, mm-hmm. you'll understand it. Right. And the the obviousness of it, in other words, the eating of the heart to maintain an unnatural, supernatural mm. life, mm. will be obvious. Mm. And he's right, but it doesn't stop me from going, what the hell? Yeah, sure. Why, yeah. why mm-hmm. heart eating? Why not blood mm. drinking? Why mm-hmm. not, I don't know, mm-hmm. soul sucking? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it, it is interesting that what we immediately set up there is now we know why he cut the heart out of Chantel. We see... We see Sylvia's heart being, or not, I'm sorry, not Sylvia. We see the thief's heart now being uh, taken and obviously eaten by the two of them to mm-hmm. maintain themselves. So we now know, we now know the rules. 
Mm-hmm. We now know what the situation is. These they they have to have human hearts. We don't know at what how many you know how often they have to have it. Well, but that's and, what they have to have. And Alaric makes the mention that, or actually Mobile, I think it is. He's but uh, they're talking. She says they mention this that there's seven moons have to pass, and then there's going Correct. to be some sort of rite that they're going to perform, which is what they're still saving these other humans for. Is after the passing of seven moons, there's there's something big approaching, a big night for them that they're going to perform some sort of satanic or evil ritual. Some type of rite. Now, right. here, here's the bit of confusion. They said seven... Didn't they say seven full moons, or did they say seven moons? In other words, was it seven days, or was it seven months? Well, that it was must never be, clear. It, it has to be... Clear. Well, I don't... I, now, I don't know what the dubbing and what the subtitle version... I can't remember what it actually said. I assume it had to have been intended to mean seven... Days because if because I do know on the final night that we'll get to when all the when the ending takes place is definitely supposed to be the night they say this is the night that we're supposed to that's obviously not seven months it passed yeah, so yeah, it has to be it, you're right but the I, intention I really anyway do. the intention anyway is that it and again it's like we talked about in the last podcast these these are these European days and nights where the days last five <laughs> minutes and you know so we get through yeah. these seven uh, nights real quick but I do know that when we get to this last the, the last night where where all hell finally uh, everything takes, hits the takes, fan yeah, yeah take, takes place and breaks loose and all that good stuff uh, is is apparently the night yeah you're right it, you're right you're right ritual supposed to happen but i do i do like i say going back through it these last couple of times i just i kept kept thinking well wait a minute are they talking about seven full moons or are they talking about seven moons because mm. there's a big difference between seven months yes, and seven is, days very much so. but okay now we get into uh the section of the film that i that we, as far as we we have hugo and um Elvira. Elvira now all by themselves. Hmm. We have the, we have them alone, and it's the, and the next day neither of them. Well, we should we should mention that uh, that Demarnac immediately goes on the make. Yeah, so does yeah both both of them. You know both of them. Yeah, both that they, of them they're you know they've been they've been dead for a long time. They're ready for a night on the town. <laughs> they definitely are ready for a night on the to town. Live it up a little bit. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what the sorceress does. What does Helgelin? Well, she she does? she well she basically does it. I mean, they basically do the same thing as they find someone in the village. Uh, in her case, a man. In his That's case, right. a woman, and hypnotize them into undressing themselves and and then they, they essentially sub, they seduce, seduce them and murder them. them seduce them and, seduce and, and, them and kill them and, that's and right kill them yes so they yeah so so they're they're up out of the coffin and ready to party yes so that's going on then we we cut to the next day and we have hugo and blanks on her name <laughs> elvira yeah. we have hugo and elvira <laughs> realizing they're all alone that everybody's gone but themselves and uh, Elvira cuts loose with uh, some information mm-hmm. that uh, her her father gaston the caretaker was of course a uh, Interested in the history of the area and had some, you know, you know, imparted a good bit of information about some of the legends around the area, and uh, actually had a few interesting things. And one thing that he had and had hidden was this amulet, a, uh, a necklace. Mm-hmm. And um, it's in the well, right? Is he's, he's had it hidden in the well. It's yeah. a talisman that's described as uh, Thor's hammers. Yeah. Now this is where we get to the. The okay, the, my my first moment in the film where I went, what the hell, mm-hmm. was the why are we dumping the bodies in a lake? Yeah. My second moment in the film where I'm going, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask. I got to hold up my hand and, and mm-hmm. ask Mr. Nashy what the hell's going on. And this is it. Yeah. Thor's hammers. Yeah. This yeah. amulet of Thor's hammers. I, I I do not understand it. And it comes to, I'm willing to go along with it, oh, sure. but. As I was discussing with you, well, it'd be earlier, bad at this point to say like, "Oh, that couldn't happen." You know, if you made it this far through yeah. the film, this is not the time to say, "Oh, come on." You better. Well, so <laughs> it is what, what we have here is this this big, big gaudy necklace, which really does look like it could be something fashioned, you know, years yeah, and years ago yeah. as as yeah. some kind of piece of 
it's you know, not, pagan as a prop, jewelry. it's not bad. It's not, it's as not a prop, bad. it's really nice looking. But you have to ask a question here, which is, what the hell was he thinking? What was this supposed to be? Was this uh, was this an attempt to either avoid... It's obvious that he doesn't want to use a crucifix. Is, this, right. is he trying to avoid using a crucifix? Trying to keep this to be a non-Christian type of uh, horror tale where he's, he's, he's not wanting it to be the crucifix where you're, you're dealing with the, the typical scenes of you know sh- keeping a vampire away with a crucifix. But, and, and, and if that's so, was he doing it on purpose to try to do something different, which is what he claims at several, mm-hmm. at several different points in interviews and on that commentary track for the, for the DVD, or was he smart enough to realize that he could maybe get in trouble if he used a crucifix, if he turned this into something that could be read by the religious establishment, the Catholic Church in Spain, as in other words, would he have run into some kind of censorship problem? Was this a form of self censorship? Well, I can tell you to this, keep but, trouble yeah, from his door. I can tell you this right now, and 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 we'll have to hold off a little bit because it's literally think about well when we get to the very last final image uh, in the film, think about if it had been a crucifix instead of Thor's hammers, and we'll get to that. And I think that you okay. may be onto something that uh, there might have been a sense of to end the film the way he wants to end it, he might not have been able to use a crucifix, and we'll uh, we'll we'll get to that. And I was about to okay. think about it, and we'll say like, he might not have been able. He might have gotten in trouble for that. But uh, but yeah, you, you bring up some good 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 points, man. I mean, it's it's I I, I, I want to say this this is a uh, my favorite line in the movie comes up at this point, and uh, um, remind me if I forget because I'll tell when we get to my second favorite, I'll bring it up too. But this is my first favorite is when they find these the Thor's hammers here. Um, Hugo says that they belong to his his ancestors. And he says, in this madness, almost anything can happen. I wrote that line down. Because too. I uh, that. if there was ever a line that could serve as the blurb for Horror Rises from the Tomb, with the, the, you know, yes. it's, it's in this yes. madness, anything can happen. In this madness, <laughs> almost anything can happen. Yes. And it's, it's so true. It does fit this film in every way that you can imagine. It's, it's but if you have, if, if did you have any more to uh, about the Thor's hammer? Well, no, no, no. I just, just, but just keep it in mind as we get to the I, end I'm, of the film, and maybe we can bring it up again and see if. We well, can... no, they, believe me, it'll be easy to bring it up again because the the, the Thor's hammer necklace plays oh, so oh, much into the next film, into the into the rest of the film because Hugo, being a good guy, immediately places this in the care of uh, Elvira, mm-hmm. has her wearing it, and this plays directly and into the very next the very next attempt for uh, for the sorcerers to do nastiness which is we have Hugo uh, well we, I mean I'm sorry we have Demarnak that night attempt to uh, come in and seduce and take Elvira right uh, she is asleep by herself for some well you remember I think what it is remember it shows oh, he's, he's, staying, stay, he's, 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 he's standing watch, guard but, trying to stay up but not doing it really he's guard. actually nodding off it actually shows him with the gun the That's shotgun, right, the shotgun. But, he's, but he's nodding off kind of falling asleep on. But Demar- he's Demarnak yeah, comes in Mm-hmm. And, and this is where we get into you. You were talking about um, the uh, the ghostly way that, that Paula came back and, and possessed. Oh, that's true. They, now, we do in have this the scene, the, kind he, of the, the, the door opens on its own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. Very very Nosferatu. Even yeah. as the as they mentioned on the commentary track, it opens on its own, and he just appears. He doesn't walk into the room. Right. He just fades in, mm-hmm. as if all he needed was the door open, mm-hmm. and then attempts to seduce her. Now she's asleep in the bed, totally nude. Good choice there. Thank you very much, folks. <laughs> With nothing on but the uh, mm-hmm. the Thor's hammer. Now the blanket is up over the the amulet. And he can't see what it is until he's right next to her, peels back mm-hmm. the uh, the blanket, mm-hmm. and then is repelled by mm-hmm. the amulet by the Thor's hammer amulet. Mm-hmm. This is when it becomes obvious 
that this is going to be essentially the the same the the, the same thing as a crucifix to him. This is this is uh, an Urzak crucifix. This is what this is to him. It, it 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 pushes him back, and he can't even be in the same room with it. And we have that wonderful scene where he he's repelled by it, and swirls around, and all this uh, all this mist and stuff comes up that he swirls into and disappears into this fog and is out of the room. Yeah. A really well shot and effective, yeah, creepy it is. scene. It is. You're right. And yeah, uh, yeah very nice. I, I I really love that scene. It's another one of those, and it's another scene in the movie, <laughs> like the one I was talking about previously, that I think you could take completely on its own. Just show someone this sequence mm-hmm. from beginning to end. That what like minute and a half or two yeah. minutes of screen time, and say this is from this film, and they would want to watch the rest of this movie. They yeah. want to see the yeah. whole thing. It's just very effectively done. Yeah. That doesn't work. He's not able to get to her. Right. So the next thing that happens, and this is what I like about this, yeah. we immediately jump to this. Mm-hmm. And there, what's almost kind of missing in a way is you just have to, you, you just kind of surmise it, which is that that plan of attack didn't work. Right, right, right. So he's got to try something else. Well, I've written on my notes here. And he's a sorcerer. Yeah, I've written on my notes here as if things weren't bad enough. And it's not just that; it's very obvious. Mm. It's very obvious when you when you pull yourself back and don't Mm. like let yourself Mm. get sucked into the kind of the the kitchen sink feel of the film, which is oh my god, they're going to throw this at us now. Mm -hmm. He obviously resurrects the dead bodies that are out in the Mm -hmm. lake now, which. Which are now what do we have? Four people out there, right? It's it's Gaston, four, four it's Gaston, Gaston, the other thief, Ga- uh, Chantel, the daughter, I, the I daughter, think, the, 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 the first daughter that was killed. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thief, and then I, I think the other one, I guess, was the younger thief. I guess was the yeah, four. Yeah, so yeah. it's got yeah, and uh, and he resurrects them as essentially mm-hmm. wet zombies. They come they come walking out of in a great in a great creepy scene yeah. right at dusk. And by the way, I didn't get a chance to reference this with the time from other movies, but you know, the 70s had several of the zombie lake kind of zombies in the lake or zombies in the water kind of films, yeah. but I wonder if I wonder if Nashi had seen any of those or how that I mean it'd be interesting to know if this is a new if this seen. was for Nashi might have been I mean for Spanish cinema or this this was probably a very think, new sort of idea. The uh, This is uh, from the I think this may be and I'm probably wrong as soon as I state this, but I, this is at least the first time I can think of it in color. Yeah. Uh, this, I think, may be one of the earliest images, I- the earliest instances of the this type of image mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. kind of zombified people coming up out of the water yeah. or yeah. the lake. And, and the way this is shot is not really doesn't even look like any of the other films that have That's this true. kind of That's thing true. in it. Yeah. But nevertheless, this is uh, this is very effective stuff. So yeah. that they uh, the, these four zombies assault the house. Yeah. And try to get try to get at Hugo and Elvira. They're able to do through the use of fire, but just mm. through the use of a basically a burning torch, get them out of the house mm. and then uh, smash smash an oil lantern on the ground. Yeah, they managed to burn. I think Gaston is one Gaston. that you know, which is uh, you know, which of course is very hard for Elvira to witness seeing her father get burned up. But he's already a zombie. But one thing I just about this zombie sequence, that, you know, it's great that suddenly we're in a zombie movie, which still fits in with the story. Like I said, it still makes right. sense within the context of the story. But it suddenly, for this sequence, it could be something right out of Lucio Fulci. I mean, it's the classic, you know, with the, yeah, the, years with earlier, the, almost a decade earlier. Yeah, and it's 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 right, exactly. Or 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 I mean, it's just it's 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 the kind of thing. If you love zombie movies, you love this kind of thing with the the people in the in the house menaced by a group of zombies. There's one strange little edit there when when he's forcing yes. them out of the house with the fire. You see one of the zombies looks like he's going around behind him, and you sort of expect. That he was going to attack him from behind, and the next thing you see, they're he's, back. He's getting them out. He's getting all. Of it them makes out you of feel house, like maybe there was something cut last. there, or there was something that was missing there because it looked like. Well, a you know what it felt like to me? It. it felt like to me, and they should have cleaned this up in the in the edit. Mm-hmm. 
this is one of the, one of the mm. few spots in the film where I would have trimmed a right. little bit of something to make it mm. to, to to do away with this problem. It seems as if they obviously did shoot something where he, it kind of lunged at him, yeah. and he managed to to, yeah, to so. get to sling him around and get him out of the way. But they either lost that footage or they they, they didn't film it properly. Right. There was some kind of problem with it. But whatever, it's not addressed in any in any of the commentaries that I've run across about that sequence. So. We, yeah. may ne- we may never know right it right it's just but I figured yeah I just wondered if you had noticed that too that yeah. it was just kind of an odd edit um, also I want to just mention the, the the makeup on the zombies is great and I just wanted to say something that the person that did the makeup was Julian uh, Ruiz who also did the makeup on uh, one of my other favorite Spanish horror films which was Horror Express yeah because uh, when I first when I was watching this uh, uh, after so many years after seeing Horror Express and I was watching this and I thought to myself God that makeup really looked familiar that style you know and so I looked up who did the makeup and, and if you had, just as an aside if you haven't seen Horror Express it is a blast from start to finish so if you get yeah. a chance to watch it see it but this if, guy did a great zombie makeup he's very good I also highly recommend Horror Express. It's yeah. just one of those great uh, pulpy Euro mm-hmm. horror films that yeah. uh, is is much like this one, constantly throwing something at you that yeah. you're just not going to quite expect. Yeah. Okay, so on the morning after uh, the zombie attack, Marie shows back up. Now, to us, it's obvious that he's still possessed because there's something a little yeah, off Yeah, he's about not. It. He's very he's still a little distant there, but he's claiming that he Got wandered lost. off in yeah. search of Paula. When Paula disappeared, that he was so distraught that he's been off on his on his own and 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 wandering off distraught and and is just now coming back when it's obvious to us mm-hmm. that that's not that's not the truth right. but hugo is so completely screwed he, yeah. he's he's so mind mm-hmm. fried by what went mm-hmm. by, by what's going on yeah. that he doesn't see the obvious thing in front of him right and uh so but what he does want to, he's trying. He's telling Maurice about what they've been through, and he wants to show Maurice. He's uh, Hugo has a mind to destroy the rest of the zombies because they were able to kill, to burn one of them. But the rest of them went back to the lake, and he wants to get them during the day before they come. They come back, and so he wants to take Maurice down to the the lake to, to, to dispatch the rest of the zombies. So they get the the shotgun, and here we come to my second favorite line of the film, uh, where he tells uh, Hugo tells Ovira, "You stay here. It's going to be disagreeable." <laughs> and yes, in the uh, and now in the in the subtitle version it says uh, unpleasant, but I prefer disagreeable. But when I saw that line, I, I just I thought, no, taking a swallow of castor oil is disagreeable. Going to <laughs> fight zombies, just somehow that word just doesn't quite uh, <laughs> doesn't quite uh, sum it up. But I anyway, think I'm gonna I have to I think I'm gonna have to agree with you. Though. <laughs> yes, I, I do love that. So they they leave Elvira Elvira back at the house. And he comes right. He goes down to the to lake to to the show. The two of them go down to the lake with yeah. a with a with a big uh, a big hook and uh, the shotgun. Hugo sets down the sets down the the shotgun. There's a neat scene mm-hmm. right nice, but nice right bet. before this happens uh, as they're walking down there there's a neat scene where uh we have Maurice walking behind Hugo with an axe. Mm-hmm. And you see him reach back and and take a swing with the axe and from the ang- first angle it looks as if he's going to swing and hit mm-hmm. Hugo in the head or the neck. Mm-hmm. But then the the perspective we go to the a second shot and we see him just burying the axe in the tree yeah, right there. Yeah. And you're like, "Well, wait a minute, I'm not completely mm-hmm. sure what's happening here." And mm-hmm. then Hugo goes to fish uh the bodies out of the lake, presumably to destroy them so that right. they so they won't be menaced by them that evening. Uh, Maurice picks up the shotgun, mm-hmm. the double-barreled shotgun, and in a truly shocking yes. sequence, because we've been led to believe so clearly at this point that Hugo is our hero, our mm-hmm. our, our character mm-hmm. we're going to follow this thing through to the end with, and Maurice blows him away, yeah. shoots him in the back. Shoot, well, he, turn, he, he turns and he shoots him in the front. Yeah, it's Hugo stumbles, falls onto this uh, 
big tree, tree stump, stump yeah. right next to the water's edge yeah. uh, and is shot in the back yeah. with the second barrel it's of the shotgun. Hard. Yeah, it's a harsh scene. It uh, definitely is. It play it plays very well. It's yeah, very it's effective. Totally Even shocking. though the blood is too bright and too yeah, yeah. too too very obviously some kind of yeah, you know they tem- borrowed, temperate some, borrowed some hammer blood there. Yeah, it's, it's definitely super thick hammer blood, but it's a very effective scene, and I yes, like it, it quite is. a bit. Very nice. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that one of the things that uh, on the the commentary track that uh, the director points out is that the reason he he shot it this way with him falling onto the the tree stump is that it looks like he's laying on an altar. Mm. Which I thought was a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. I'd not thought of it that way. I just it, it, it does look quite yeah. effective, but mm-hmm. that's 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 a neat touch. I thought I thought it was just effective because it allowed them to let the, the blood drip mm-hmm. down the thing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. into the water. Right. But still very nicely done, and I, it's it's a heck of a nice touch, regardless of the reason. Yes, it is. So now now uh, now we've gone to this point where we're literally down to at this point we're down to one last last woman standing, which is Elvira. Maurice is possessed. Yes, still. and he comes back. She's asking, "What? Where's Hugo? What's happened?" She quickly realizes that something's wrong with Maurice, and he attacks her. But he touches yes. the Thor's hammer mm-hmm. am- amulet, the talisman, and this burns his hand. He collapses, mm-hmm. and quick cut. The two of them are in the house, mm-hmm. and once again, the film and its amphetamine-fueled desire yeah. to tell this story yeah. at a rapid pace uh-huh. get, gets across the idea clearly that this. The touching of this amulet has it's broken the spell. Broken the yeah. spell. He's yeah. no longer in trance. He's no longer possessed by Demarnac. Mm-hmm. And now it's the two of them mm-hmm. uh, facing off against <clears throat> the evildoers, the the, the evil sorcerers. Mm-hmm. Very neat here because the idea put put forth by uh, in, in the commentary track, bluntly in the commentary track, but just mm-hmm. um, very very slyly in the film is that the the touch of this thing would destroy these evil reincarnated beings mm-hmm. but it just it just destroys their their hold on someone who's been possessed or right. put in a trance by them right which i think is which is a great little thing but once it, again it, points to the idea of this being a crucifix this is mm-hmm. a hurts mm-hmm. crucifix so mm-hmm. this is this is quite nice and I, lo- I love the way it's used I, and it's it's um it's a, it's a nice sequence all the way around they he now knows he he has he has retained uh, memory of what what went on, yeah. and is dutifully and is of course quite horrified by it. Mm-hmm. So the um, they decide to venture down into the catacombs to try to destroy them during the day. Can, um, yeah, I just want to back up for a second here because yeah. it's a very interesting scene here that I wanted to just kind of see if you thought about or get your take on. Is you know they they uh, there's just one of those convenient old books of ancestral lore you know lying ah, around yes, that they yeah. find. Maurice starts reading it, and he finds out that. In order to, I can't remember if it was just to kill the sorceress or. Well, they're, 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 they're different methods. There's different methods to kill the sorcerer. Uh, you had to. You're, you, they're going to have to place the Thor's hammers on his, I think, on his chest, and to kill the sorceress has to be stabbed through the heart with a silver needle. And the book makes it very clear that these are that these differences are because of their gender. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Which I thought was I thought was very interesting. It was, and it was, and 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 what's more, and what's even more interesting to me is the way this scene is filmed. The camera is backing away. And as he's talking about that they're going to need this silver needle, we see into the foreground comes this statue, which has been there all along as part of the decor. Is this knight, this statue of a silver statue of a knight holding a well, a lance? A lance. Well, well, yeah, it would be a lance, but which it's very obvious it's going to be the silver. Now, what's what's interesting about this this scene is the way that they they talk around this. You know, the camera clearly shows us this. You know, without it totally focusing on it, the, into the foreground comes this this knight holding what's obviously going to be the silver needle that they're what's yeah. going to function as the silver needle at no point do either of them he's he's practically saying now where are we going to find 
a silver needle. At no point yeah. do either, either of them, of them like them look go, and say, uh-huh. "Hey." It's just very interesting the way it's done because yeah. the next thing we know, they have it in that. But it's just I, I, I just wonder. I, I, I would, I, I'm sitting there on one hand, I'm thinking, okay. Was there something else edited out, or it, in a lot of ways, it's almost like kind of a neat little way of it's kind of a neat way to show to that. To me, it's know? another, it's yet another one of those little leaps ahead mm-hmm. that just point once again, I think, toward mm-hmm. the amphetamine fueled yeah. nature yeah. of the story yeah. as written, which is he knew exactly what he needed to get to, mm-hmm. and I could, you know, he could write a little, he could write some dialogue where it's, like, oh look, there is a silver needle. Let us detach that from the yeah. statue, yeah, and we have kinda, our weapon. Yeah, or he could just go, I'll show it to the audience, boom, we're there, Boom, go. we're there, they've got the needle, because it immediately leaps to where they're, they're going to go down the crypt and try and destroy these beings, and they have with them their weapons, the Thor's hammers and the, the silver needle. And also, I have to point out at this point that uh, uh, Emma Cohen, the actress that plays Elvira, is now wearing pants and does so for the rest of the film. And I can only imagine, of course, they mentioned that, unlike her character that she plays in the film, Emma Cohen was, was apparently a, a, a pretty liberated strong-willed actress and I can only imagine at some point she just said to Carlos and Paul look you guys ain't paying me enough to freeze my ass off anymore I'm gonna wear pants the rest of the film <laughs> that, that may very well be true they both speak they both speak very highly yeah, of her on yeah, the commentary yeah. track so she obviously made an impression on them but the uh, I did find it amusing that throughout the entire zombie zombie attack sequence she's wearing this incredibly short dress yeah, this incredibly short mini skirt mm-hmm. and at several instances during that sequence you can quite clearly see her panties yeah, and it's, it's just it's, one of those things where it's not not that I'm unhappy to have her wearing such a short dress and be able to see like her underwear anime all of a sudden yeah, no, it did it did it did get the kind of it did feel kind of bizarre at certain points but it, it knowing how cold it was yeah the, the the logic of this of this woman running around yeah. with these with her gorgeous legs bare yeah. constantly did kind of push I mean not not that logic or anything else should really enter into this bizarre tale <laughs> but in this kind of way but she should have gotten at least some kind of award you know there should be some sort of film award for this kind of uh, <laughs> <laughs> of letting not not uh, not a letting it all hang out award but just, a kind of uh, Boy, you really took one for the team, there you kind go, of award. Exactly. I mean, because she, she, she did. I mean, for for the for the uh, the eroticism that she has on mm. display there in the in the sequences <laughs> where it's obviously freezing freaking cold. Uh, I'm more I'm more than glad that she what whatever happened to allow her to wear pants for the rest of the film because that poor lady, good God, you know it was freezing. Up. You can see their breath for God's sake. Oh, I know. But they get down to this crypt and they kind of quickly find out that that's not going to work for them because the the atmosphere, the influence of the. The sorcerers are so strong down there. They hear they get down there just a little ways, and they they we have this kind of laughter. We have the red, we have the red lights. We have yeah, this the, really evil mm. laughter, and it mm. very clearly gets under their skin so much that they just have to they have yeah. to leave the place. Yeah, and at this point, you know, Maurice is is basically saying like it's hopeless, and and Elvira's kind of got the different take on it. She's really believing at this point. She says, you know, as as long as we have. As long as we have these things, we're going to, you know, we're still going to, you know, win, good is going to win, or we're going to somehow overcome this. It is, of course, at this point, if at no other point in the film, that I began to feel very clearly that just maybe the amphetamine brain <laughs> Nashy was making this crap up as he went along. <laughs> uh, because there is such a, you have to think about it hard at times to see that this is not just a bunch of crap thrown up there. Yeah. With mm-hmm. with no real connection between it all, one of the overall impressions I got initially was that it was almost a series of ideas in search of a plot or in yeah. search of some kind of coherent story, but it really isn't. Right. And like I say, I'm so glad I watched it through a second time recently. This is like my fourth or fifth time to watch this film in my life. So going through it this time, it became evident I could see the things that 
they're just rushing past mm-hmm. for whatever reason mm-hmm. to make to, to to go on to the next point they have in the story because they have so many ideas they they want to hit that they just mm-hmm. pop 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 pop. And this is after all a ninety minute horror film and boom 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 right. we're gonna move. And and there seems to be a little bit of at this point there seems to be a little bit of an inconsistency in in the character of Avira where she's basically boistering she's basically lifting Maurice up a little bit saying like as long as we have our yeah. faith we're gonna win because. Before this and after this, I mean, she's she's really for about this last third of the film since things have been happening one after another. Is she's been playing the character as being in almost a little bit of a almost near catatonic state of shock. Yeah. Um. And so where she kind of makes this little speech about uh, how they're still going to win if their faith holds true. At at this point, it seems a little bit of inconsistency, but at the same time, it 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 will have a little bit of it'll have more resonance when we get to the final scene of the film. I think it still does play makes the final scene um, uh, more powerful because of her saying this. But Well, well I will say that her actions at this point did not stand out to me mm-hmm. watching this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, her, her, her little change, her, her the stiffening of her spine, essentially, her, yeah. her, her, mm-hmm. her decision to be a bit more mm-hmm. upfront and, and active in, mm-hmm. in the planning, at least. Yeah. Uh, and I think that maybe that's just because she seemed to be more demure or kind of hold herself back right. when around Hugo. And with Maurice, there's a different dynamic where Hugo she grew up with, Hugo she was in love with. Maurice is just this guy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, um, yeah that's a good point. That's a, that's, so yeah. that that doesn't that that didn't seem that odd to me. Okay, although that's I can see why I yeah. can see how that could be seen as an inconsistency of character. So right. that makes sense. So then we get to um, well, um, this is the this is the sequence that I got. I got well, basically, um, Mobile and uh, Mobile Delancre and uh, Alaric de Marnac, uh, the John and Yoko of evil, basically, as I was calling them. You know, <laughs> they're uh, they're they decide to go out on another night on the town. Uh, the, you know, they're hungry again. She's hungry. She's bitching about how she's hungry. Oh, she's and, very and she's much wanting bitching. To chew up. She's, she's wanting, to go, wanting, to, she's wanting to go ahead and carve the heart out of out of Paula, their their yeah. last little uh, mm-hmm. entranced slave right. there. And Demarnak holds her off. Says, going, no, 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 no. We gotta wait for the gotta wait for the last night. You know, we gotta wait for the last night to do our right. So they basically go out to find somebody else. And lo and behold, who do they find? But they find the uh, you know early, going way back to earlier in the film when they Dude, were initially yeah. attacked attacked by the uh, criminals who and they were saved by the vigilante group of of guys who weren't much better who were obviously criminals themselves who had seen them flash these big wads of money. Well, now we finally uh, get back to uh, to those, those two guys, and they're sitting there. They're, they've got their horses standing by, just kind of talking about uh, how... Well, they've got, they've got a fire going there. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, and they're, they're plotting because they've, they've stayed in their mind that they've seen this this money. That, that Hugo, Hugo, Hugo flashed that big wad of cash. So they decide they're finally going to go and, and rob these people and take whatever else is... They figure there's all sorts of wealth in this estate, and so they're going to plan, they're planning to attack them. And... Uh, uh, they don't get very far because here appears the uh, Alaric de Marnik and Mabille de Lancre and uh, basically uh, make short work of them. And I thought this was great because... Well, this you, was apparently a pretty controversial scene. Um, well, yeah, and it's pretty... I mean, it's, it's really, really... It gory. is. It is. Very well done effects and where they rip open their chest, basically, and uh-huh. take out their hearts. But well, and it's not just they rip open the chest. Here's the thing that really shocked me about it is it's it's Helga Lanay. It's the female. Yeah, yeah. That rips the chest of one of these guys open and reaches in and rips out his heart. Yeah, and and let's and let's also just just give a shout out to Helga Linnea's just being I mean, oh. one, she was the perfect counterpart yeah. to Nashi's evil character. I mean, the two of them together make such a striking. I mean, it's kind of like in our first film that we did on in in episode 1 when we talked about Mark of the Wolfman, the vampire couple and that just so perfectly complemented one another and were so perfectly physically cast and here Nashi and Helga Delena, Helga, Helga Linnea, excuse me. Uh, are just make such a great 
just looks great, great together, team. you know. And she and t- talk about and here her and here's the way. thing now now. Helga was in a lot of films. I recognize her mm-hmm. even, before, even even when I first saw this years ago. I recognized her from mm-hmm. a few of the things that I'd already seen her in. Mm-hmm. She turns up in a lot of movies: uh, The Lorelei's Grasp, um, or Grasp of the Lorelei. Um, she was in a Santo film, for goodness' sake. Besides this, I, I caught her in a, a, a Sartana film just uh, about a month ago. She's she's been in doesn't uh, she's in a lot of Euro Euro spy films mm-hmm. in the '60s. This beautiful woman, and here's the real shocker for me: she spends a lot of her time in this film nude, mm-hmm. or s- mostly nude, mm-hmm. wearing a very sheer thing. Beautiful, beautiful woman. When she made this film, she was 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was born in '32. Mm-hmm. When I realized that, I, I rubbed my head in, in stunned anguish. That yeah. I, I honestly had no idea. I, if I'd had to have guessed just looking at this film, I'd figure she was maybe 29, 30, oh, yeah. maybe 31, 32, yeah. Yeah. in that, in that yeah. range. And she obviously had no problem with the nudity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's absolutely gorgeous, and she really does command mm-hmm. those scenes oh, yeah. when she has to be evil, when she yeah, has she to be that, that sinister presence. She's and this, very good at it. And this was her first horror movie, uh, even though, yeah. like you said, you know, she'd done comedy westerns, but this started kind of a, another career into horror films uh, for her. Well, she worked with uh, Nashi a couple more times after this. She was in uh, *Vengeance of the Mummy*. Mm-hmm. She did *Vampires Night Orgy*. Right. So she 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 stayed she stayed working in the genre for a good long while after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got my hands on another for films here recently. She was in just a few years after this. She was in *Open Season*, this American-made film with um, Peter Fonda and John Philip Law and Richard Lynch and and William Holden. Very very good film. And she has she has a role in it, and she 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 had a long career. I don't think she I don't think her career ended until quite some time later. But nevertheless, she's very good in this, and I'm always glad to see her turn up in a in a film when I'm not expecting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have the uh, the incredibly gruesome and apparently yeah. quite controversial and often trimmed mm-hmm. scene mm-hmm. where the with the heart ripping and mm-hmm. the 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 mm-hmm. eating of yet another heart to keep the two uh, supernatural beings going mm-hmm. and then we're really pretty much at the uh the 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 big night it's a, basically as i call it it's uh, seven moons apparently have passed and they're ready for the big ritual and it's basically they're back in the crypt and they have still have paula in their thrall they basically still have her as their slave and this comes a very interesting scene here with uh and with with paula and the two sorcerers Oh yes, we have what I refer to as the uh, the supernatural threesome with yes. uh, with the two sorcerers and Paula, which uh, the the demonic threesome. After this, it's time for the uh, the takedown with the two survivors, the showdown, I should say, with yeah. our with our two survivors. Now we almost may need a. It's like you almost need like a a, a map or a chess, you know, because <laughs> you have to stay with us, folks. We're at, we're at the we're at the the, the finale of the the film and uh, basically involving five characters. You have Maurice and Elvira who are being assaulted by Alert Demarnek and Mobile Delancre and their uh, and, and and Paula, Paula who is still in their thrall and so bodies shift and jump around locations so much in this it's, a, it's like I said it's it, it's you need to sort of uh, keep this in a certain order here but uh, but the first thing that um, Paula is is going to try to lure Maurice again she's going to try yes. to to because she's done it once and and this time he kind of knows that it's it's not her because but he's again he's he's got to go out and see because of his emotional attachment to her but this time he at least takes the thor's hammers with him and leaves elvira inside with the silver needle so he goes out to find uh he goes out to confront paula and 
they embrace, and when he touches Paula with the Thor's hammers, then it does the same thing it had done to him earlier. It basically breaks the spell, and she collapses. Yep. Well, the same, the same thing which happened to him, so it's mm-hmm. consistent. Right, right. At the same time, Alec Dermarnik is goes inside. He appears inside and attacks Elvira, Elvira, and Maurice, after he's after Paula has collapsed, Maurice comes back inside and chases Demarnak outside with, with the, the Thor's uh, hammers. The and so yeah. he takes off after Alec Demarnak, again, leaving Elvira alone inside. Now, Paula comes, uh, wakes up from having collapsed and having the spell broken, just in time to get killed by Mabille. Yeah. <laughs> Mabille Delancre, realize, you know, I mean, she's, she's not in their thrall anymore, so basically she just kills her, cuts her down, you know, rips her throat out, and so Paula's gone, doesn't dispatch. So, um, and while... Maurice is chasing after Alec Demarnik. Mabille Delancre goes inside the house to attack Elvira, and Elvira grabs a silver needle and stabs her in the heart, which turns her back into a skeleton. And and so, uh, yeah, immediately turns her into a skeleton, and she collapses on the ground, which yeah. is a neat, neat, li- neat little cheap effect that just works well. Yeah, so she's gone, and Alaric Demarnik grabs a outside. We're back outside again. He grabs an axe, and he and Maurice face off, and he throws the axe and hits Maurice at the same moment that Maurice throws the, the Thor's hammers and hits him in the chest, which obviously wounds him. It doesn't put him down, but it it wounds him, uh, and, and he buries, and the, the, hat, the axe that he throws buries itself in Maurice's chest, and so Maurice, you know, yet again, thought was going to be the hero, Maurice is now dead, so yeah, it's yeah. down to Elvira now. And the the glancing blow with the Thor's Thor's hammer amulet has not put Demarnak down, but it has obviously injured him. Yes. Because he's now seemingly crippled and yeah, starts yeah. crawling up the st- the uh, the front stone stairs toward the house. Mm-hmm. Out of the house comes Elvira. Mm-hmm. She sees what's going on. She mm-hmm. sees the she sees the dead um, Maurice with the the axe in him. Yeah, he is buried in his chest. There, Correct. And sees the the very evil man climbing up the staircase toward her. Uh, was it, and I think there's smoke coming off of it. It, it is. It yeah. is. Yeah. There's right, a smoke right. or, or, or right. kind of a, a, a mist or, or, or fog coming off of him. Lays the Thor's hammer. She lays the Thor's hammer chest. against him. Mm-hmm. Holds it against him, and uh, this this essentially destroys him. And the the scarring around his neck becomes more and more prominent. There's there's mm-hmm. a little smoke and mist coming out of the the yeah. uh, the markings around his neck, and the head comes off, mm-hmm. and he's. Once again, dead, or mm-hmm. what, however dead he can become. However yeah. dead he can become, right. I suppose. <laughs> head, head, head away from body. Yeah. He's dead. So, right. end of end of evil at that point. And at that point, his body uh, dissolves into a a pile of uh, gray ash, much like uh, the demise of Christopher Lee at the end mm-hmm. of Horror of Dracula. Mm-hmm. I might add. Yeah. Uh, and the wind starts to whip around mm-hmm. and carry it away, also mm-hmm. like the end of Horror of Dracula. So. That's the end of our evildoers, mm-hmm. and the end of our film. Now I've uh, well, there's there's the last, there's basically the last thing right. we see is it's it's kind of the next morning, and Elvira is is the is sole just kind survivor. of yeah, and obviously pretty shattered, you know. And this is a beautiful ending because we got the snow again on this lake, you know, which is yeah. just a, a gorgeous uh, scenery. Uh, she's kind of just wandering, seemingly kind of aimlessly along the side of the lake, obviously shattered by everything that's happened. And the last thing she does is she takes the Thor's hammers and throws them into the lake. And that's the last thing we see. And here's where we get the point where I say, if he had done that with a crucifix, that might have caused a little more problem if he planned to do this. Yeah. But I wanted to yeah. ask you, I wanted I see what you're saying. before we, anything else, 
Let's take a breath, folks. Let's get into this. We actually got this. <laughs> it's <laughs> this, a big, long rush of a film. It is. It's amazing. Uh, but uh, I wanted to. I, I kind of wanted to, to see what you made of that of that ending, uh, that last scene. Of uh, I think that uh, I think it's very to me. It's it's very powerful of her of her throwing the Thor's hammers back into or throwing them into the water. To me, I, I, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say that. And of course, a little bit of what I'm saying, uh, I'd wondered, and then I listened to the audio commentary, and and uh, it seemed like a little bit of what Nashi was saying at the last kind of makes uh, looks. It seems to me like he did intend for it to be something of a of a, a sign that she's lost her faith, or that she's given up hope, or just or just the fact that she's lost so much. Because, but it, it's interesting to me because the Thor's hammers worked. You know, they did what they said they were going to do. They defeated evil, and yet there's almost. There's almost not really a feeling of a victory here. Uh, there's a, more of a survival. Of, it's not so much a victory yeah, as survival. But the yeah. fact that you would think that she would hold those things to her even closer because of the fact that they did work and they did pull her through, they did survive. But instead, she discards them. She throws them away. And I think it's just a very interesting thing. Did you for her do, do you read it as uh, <clears throat> do you read it as nihilistic? A little, bit, yeah, um, a little bit, yeah, a little, a little bit. I mean, it's I kind of, I kind of. I, I mean, we're de- we're definitely in the early seventies, and the, that's the height of. Well, it's one of my favorite periods of time for mm-hmm. for filmmaking, whether we're talking European filmmaking or American filmmaking, and uh, the 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 downbeat or nihilistic ending was big then. It's, it it's, it's, was, and I think you know I, again I, I'm not totally positive. I know when I saw this film again, and you know, despite the fact that it was obviously trimmed of things when I saw it on TV, it it still carried this much. You know, it still was going to be obviously a bleak and, and downbeat film. And I know at that point I had not seen. Night of the Living Dead, and in my memory, I feel like it might be my first real film with a real '70s sensibility that I saw as far as horror films go. Um, but, but I, th- I think to me, I feel like this film is very much in, in touch with what was going on at the time. I think Nashi's film was very much um, capturing a lot of what was going on in, well, in a, '70s. A, a, a kind of a sense of um, hopelessness, yeah, or, I mean, um, resignation of. of, of <clears throat> An acceptance of the 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 horrible nature of yeah. life in so many instances, yeah. and it's not necessarily something that comes across in, in a lot of his films because in, in many of his films made before and after, you know, there's there's kind of a little bit more of a return to the sort of romantic. I mean, he loves tragedy, well, but there's always a little bit. I feel like this was maybe one of his most stark. Not his only one, I don't believe, but but no, just my, this but, one's but, really this one does have a stark ending. Though. I mean, to me, I feel like and, it's a hopeless. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of nihilistic and hopeless kind of tone to this film. I, 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 I think you're right, but I'll be honest, I hadn't given it that much thought until you brought it up because it's clear now. Think about it for a second. Mm. Say that they had ended the film mm. with a final shot of the the wind whipping around and blowing the ashes around. Just kind of dispersing the evil which sorcerer. Is where, which is where the, the ha- that's where the Hammer film would have ended. That's right exactly there. where the Hammer, you know, yeah. Monster Dead movie over, right, slam, right, exactly. roll credits. Mm-hmm. That's not where this one ends. Right. That little, it's a coda. It's yeah. a, it's a little a, it's a little afterward, mm-hmm. tacked on there for obviously a very a very strong reason. They could have ended it right there, and it would have been a completely satisfying horror film. Yeah, it would. Yeah, and. They decided not to. You're right. They mm-hmm. add this scene to it. This mm-hmm. this this scene with her tossing that what's essentially let's call it a magic talisman, throwing mm-hmm. it into the water, right? Getting rid of it. This was around the same time of Dirty Harry, where he throws his badge into the water at the end of the film. Mm, I hadn't thought about that. And to yeah. be honest, that's exactly what just occurred to me. That mm-hmm. that seems to me to be a mirroring of that mm-hmm. scene with him. I not thought about that. Him, Interesting. You know, yeah. if there'd never been any Dirty Harry sequels, which is the way it kind of should have been. <laughs> With that character throwing throwing away 
the the thing that gave him the right to do mm-hmm. what he what he was doing right. the, the 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 veneer mm-hmm. and it seems very similar to me the idea of her tossing that talisman right it's not necessarily that she's saying that doesn't believe that they work it's just that it's almost like she's letting go of life it's almost like because of what she's like she doesn't see anything more for herself because of all that she's lost you know it's not that they don't work it's just that they don't it doesn't matter to her that she doesn't need their she doesn't care enough about anything to want their protection and but you do you see what i'm saying about i see it it, but also you see what i'm saying about why if he saw this in his head, why he may have also chosen to use the Thor's hammers instead of the cross, getting back to what you talked about, the possibility of getting in trouble with someone throwing a cross into the water at the like, probably would not have played real probably well. Probably would not have Spanish, played it. Uh, and it definitely, even if they had filmed it, they probably would not have kept it into the film right. in, a, in a final edit. Not the Spa- of, yeah, not in the Spanish just, cut anyway. Not in the Spanish yeah. cut, but just out of self-censorship, they, it, would have been, it wouldn't have been something they would have been called on. I think they would have left it out just knowing it would never fly. Right. But... Um, a few questions to, to wrap things up. Sure. I mean, uh, talking about that uh, the climactic confrontation between Demarnak and Maurice, um, I like it. I enjoy it. I think it. Mm. I think it. I think it plays pretty well. Mm-hmm. Even as I wish it had kind of been slightly better edited or framed, because there's several the shots that mm-hmm. that much like Mark of the Wolfman that we discussed yeah, last get, time. Yeah. You get to that final conflict, that mm-hmm. final throwdown battle at mm-hmm. the end, and it's kind of clumsily shot and edited yeah, at times yeah. where there was so little of that feeling throughout the whole rest of this film mm-hmm. we get to the very final fight essentially and it mm-hmm. plays clunkily it mm-hmm. doesn't work as well as it should the last few seconds of it do when the, with the uh, the the death of Maurice mm-hmm. and uh, the glancing blow that kind of cripples de Marnac, that little bit of it yeah. works but yeah. up to then yeah. it's it's sloppy. It's clunky. It it takes yeah. me right out of it. It makes me oh man. It just doesn't look and feel right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, so you know that that that's a that's a point against it to a degree. It almost um, makes me wonder if uh, if everything would have been a little better if it had sort of taken place more or less in the same area as far as all the characters been outside in the same area where all the kind of actions going on at once rather than this bouncing in and out of inside outside inside outside i wonder if it i don't know i don't i don't know if that would have made it better or not because Mm -hmm. i get the feeling that the problem that the reason that scene may or may not have worked as well is because it was being filmed outside Mm -hmm. uh in in the cold that night and i think that there may have been a rush to just get it done yeah yeah that's probably true uh plus you know the, the fact that they've got to put you know these special effects makeup on makeups yeah. on them and things of this nature all these things that we've got to do out here in the freezing freaking cold <laughs> it just um, it, it does unfortunately it's a point against the film it's not a it's not a a horrible detriment but it is a point mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. so the film once again we're talking about a film with a modern setting mm-hmm. how do you think the film would have played if it had not been a modern day tale in other words mm-hmm. so much of this film th- doesn't need to be set in the early 1970s no, it could have been no, set that's true it could have been set in the 1870s could have been set a hundred years before very easily it would have just changed some of the outward details and not even all of the outward details so, no no um it's a good question i don't i don't know if it would have affected it too much i think there is there is a little something about the the you know showing the characters in modern day paris uh a lot to do with with uh, hugo's skepticism about anything supernatural uh the fact that they're all obviously you know modern hip young no. people that's always an interesting thing to throw them then suddenly back into this you know other world uh but i i guess i'm on i guess thinking about it uh, just off the top of my head i don't know that i 
I see that it couldn't possibly have worked if the time, you know, it, it didn't necessarily have to be said in the time that it was. Okay. Um, um, I, can, I kind of agree with you. I, 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 I very much like the, the modern setting, strangely mm-hmm. enough. It, it somehow feel it somehow feels, if it somehow feels more right than Mark of the Wolfman did to a degree. I'll say this, I don't, not necessarily the setting, but just the whole atmosphere and the style of the filming, I think, definitely, which is obviously a more modern kind of, uh, feel, in other words, it doesn't feel like an old gothic, it doesn't right. feel like an old, now that, in that sense, I certainly believe okay. that it works much, much better for the, the story. We've touched a little bit on the English dubbing. Mm-hmm. Overall, I thought the dubbing was very good, but I did have one quibble. I wasn't thrilled with Hugo's voice. I didn't have so much of a problem with uh, the DeMarnak voice. Really? But Hugo's voice, it didn't seem to fit. It was mm-hmm. a little too smooth. Mm-hmm. It didn't really seem to fit the character a lot of the time. Now, later on in the film, when he's more frantic and worried and, and all hell's breaking loose, yeah, yeah. it did fit then because the uh, I think it's just the, the excitement level and things changed and everything's kind of pumped up. Mm-hmm. But early on, it just I kept being pulled out a little bit because the voice didn't seem to fit. Mm-hmm. No. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because, like I said, I sort of had a little bit of the opposite. I was not, I wasn't, I I didn't just hate the voice they used for Alaric Demarnik, but it just kind of bothered me a little bit. It just it sounded to me like somebody trying to sound like an evil, you know, trying to sound like an evil <laughs> sorcerer without really quite yeah, conveying I, it. I, just I, I can see. I got that. more used to it as the film went on, but especially in the early scenes where they're like, where, especially in the opening where they're, you know. Uh, where he's he's spitting the curse. Well, I'll tell you where it just, works. Like, I'll tell you where it works. Like a charm is in the evil laughter. Yeah, oh, that, that is was great. Some that was absolutely yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Evil yeah. laughter. And it, oh man, I should have checked to see if it's the same evil laugh mm-hmm. on the Spanish track as on the English dub track. I don't know. I should have oh, thought about that. Yeah, but, I didn't think about but that it's, that's very effective. Mm-hmm. That's 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 just good stuff. What do you think of the music? The soundtrack. The uh, it's very strange. It is. It is. It oh, is a very the... very idiosyncratic. Score. Carmelo Bernala is his name, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, boy, odd, yeah, just heavy organ, heavy yeah, duty organ, dirge like organ, mm-hmm. and and coming in at odd times mm-hmm. and in odd ways, yes, in that odd cricking sound that, that mm. bizarre clicking sound mm. that uh, comes in repeatedly. Yeah, there's yeah, there's places where he's using things that don't sound like typical instruments, you know, just odd sound effects, and it's a uh, uh, yeah, very jarring uh, kind of combined with the I, th- I think. I think it makes a nice. If it had just been all the dirge-like organ, it would have. It maybe would have gotten yeah. uh, a little heavy-handed at points. But the fact that it mixes it with some of these these odder, unusual instrument instrumental work is, uh, yeah. I, I really end up uh, thinking it's a very interesting soundtrack, and 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 kind of grew on me. You know, the more I've seen the film, it's 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 I've grown to like it more. Yeah, I, I, I think the first time I saw the film, I I thought the score was a little over the a little mm. over the top, bizarre, mm. Mm. Uh, in that it is so organ heavy right. that. It almost feels like the score for a silent film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, but the thing is, it, on future viewings and especially these two most recent viewings, it really feels natural to it. But I guess that's just because I've seen the film a few times now and right. I kind of know where it's going and what it's aiming at. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. at any rate, um, we've talked about a little bit of this before. I always like to think about the female characters in a Nashi film, and in this one we have four. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, we have five. And I like I like to joke that you have essentially two separate types of characters, two separate types of female mm-hmm. characters mm-hmm. in a Paul Nashy story. You have uh, girlfriends and villains, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and essentially that's what we have here. Right. Uh, you have girlfriends slash victims, and you have mm-hmm. the villain. And uh, in this one, there's a little switching back and forth with the with the possessed ones, mm-hmm. but that's really what it boils down to. the The most surprising thing to me here none of these none of the female characters are very well drawn. Mm-hmm. 
at all until you get down to where it's just the Elvira character played by Emma Cohen. Right. And she's given so much screen time that there's really nothing else mm-hmm. to do but to build the character at least mm-hmm. in what we in, in that we're spending a lot of time with her. Mm-hmm. But did you did you see um, anything stand out here with the female characters at all? Um not not particularly. I didn't feel um I thought that um again her her character I, by her, I mean Elvira. I thought Emma Cohen did play the character very well, and, and yeah. especially and, and apparently the character was a total antithesis of, of what she what she was like in real in real life, you know. But a lot of times the character seems a little bit seems a little weak at times. Weak in the sense of I just mean just just uh, a little helpless, yeah, just a little yeah, a little underwritten, you know, oh, and well, a little. Okay. But but I think that but but still I think she certainly makes I mean she certainly brings that out in the character the vulnerability I mean she certainly yeah. uh, um, but uh, and the character that and what's interesting about that character is just once again the fact that that she she surprises you halfway through the film by suddenly becoming the almost the main character becoming one of the main characters mm-hmm. where you don't initially think that she's going to be. Um, again, I certainly didn't yeah. expect her to survive. Yeah. I didn't expect her to be the sole right. survivor of the film. But I, to me, Helga Linné is the one who really stands out the most of all of them as oh, far yeah. as just truly, really, really being great for the role and, and uh, has some, some great little moments, little nuances, even for such a obviously broadly evil character. Uh, she's just, uh, I think she's the perfect, she totally holds the screen alongside Nashi. And I, so. I, I like to think of Helga's performance in this film as being a multifaceted portrayal of a one-note character. Yeah, she yeah, really sure. does seem mm-hmm. to, uh, to well to mix several metaphors. Anyway, she does a really good job with very little, and it's almost all in the way she delivers her very few lines, mm-hmm. carries herself, and that amazing expressional expressive face that yeah. that, that, that the emotional expressions that she brings to things, mm-hmm. and she's she's just very very good at it. Not not that she's not a very pretty woman to look at. Of course, right. obviously she is. But it's um, it's her presence, her on-screen presence, mm-hmm. that really carries the day. And I, you got to think, at the end of the day, that's one of the reasons she's cast in so many of those those types of roles from here on out in her career mm-hmm. is that presence. Mm-hmm. Um, she's 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 really good. Yeah. This is uh, this was Carlos Allred's first film as uh, as a director. First time he got a shot at it. He's amazingly assured mm-hmm. in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. We've as we've gone along we've pointed out a few spots where yeah. I think um there's there's something falling down either in the direction or in uh maybe the you might want to call it the editing one way or another. But the um for a first time man obviously he'd been apprenticed under Klamowski so he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. What a what a first out of the gate shot. I agree. I agree. He, I thought it was he, he did a phenomenal job, mm-hmm. I think. This and is a great little movie. I believe uh I read it might have been in Tim Lucas's obit for him, but I know that I read in 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 in, in making my notes for our, our cast here uh, that uh, I believe that he considered uh, this still to be his best film. You know, it's it's, it's I mean himself he, he, he makes that which, comment. You know, yeah, he you know, makes about. that comment in several places. Uh, and when you look at some of his other films, I don't I don't I don't think I agree with him actually. Yeah, I and think, probably from our view point of view, I mean, they probably did do you know it's a better work. It's interesting that he I mean looks back on his first film as as his best because yeah I, I, I would imagine after we see more I will probably you know see that he probably did, still did better as far as technically directing mm-hmm. well I'll, I'll tell you right up front that I think Werewolf Shadow mm-hmm. a film he did a, a year or two later with Nashi I think is a better film than this mm-hmm. uh, not just a better film but I think a better directed film mm-hmm. and I think that that's pointed out quite clearly by the fact that Nashi then remade the exact same story himself and directed it himself several years later mm-hmm. And I don't think he did nearly as good a job as Allred did with mm-hmm. Werewolf Shadow, but we'll get mm-hmm. to that film eventually sure. anyway. Let's not uh, let's not mm-hmm. jump too far ahead as we go. 
So, uh, any any parting thoughts on Horror Rises from the uh, Yeah, a few here. One thing, when you read the questions there, I actually want to get back to uh, a question that you asked in our first cast, which you asked about uh, Mark of the Wolf, and you asked me if I thought it would appeal to a modern audience. How would it play hmm. to a modern audience? And I think it's interesting to apply the same question to this film, because whereas Mark of the Wolfman, I kind of... I was sort of, I was sort of, uh, you know, I was kind of lukewarm about that possibility. I felt like it might be, uh, since because as we talked about with it, not only was it, 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 you know, it had a little bit more of a, of a, of a, you know, more of hammer levels kind of, of as far as the violence and the the blood and and you know and 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 the pacing of it, you know, a little bit more yeah, of a language. Yeah, yeah. It's, pacing. It's we more, thought it was a language. gorgeous film, and it's great to compare these two teams, uh, these two, excuse me, films because. Just in the styles of, they're both so atmospheric in their own right, but in totally different ways. You know, the Mark of the Wolfman was so much more, in so many ways, fantastical, and with all the the, the use of the lighting and the fog and, very, and kind very, of dreamlike in a lot of very, ways. Uh, yeah, very nightmarish or dreamlike. Yeah. Whereas this film is this one is it not. Uses its, it uses a totally different the starkness and the coldness uh, to its advantage. So they're yeah. very they're atmospheric, but in totally different ways. But to take that same question and apply it to Horror Rise from the Tomb, I would really enthusiastically. I would I would be willing to to put this in front of an of a of a modern audience. Uh, I think that this is I, you know I'll put it this way: this is the film that I would show to someone who was coming into Nashi for cold. the first time. Yeah, I yeah. think I think it would. And uh, uh, something I want to bring up here, just a just as a source of amusement. I don't normally do this with all these films, but I had to in this one. Um, our final body count for this film is <laughs> counting the counting the double deaths of the uh, sorcerers eighteen folks. Wow, really? Yes, 18 deaths. Uh, that actually uh, works out to uh, one death per five minutes, every five minutes of footage. <laughs> and <laughs> you combine that. Now, I didn't do a, uh, I did not do a, uh, I did not do the same ratio with the nudity in the film, but uh, yeah, I would oh, imagine wow. it would work out to about the same. So, I mean, like I said, for people of a modern horror audience and what they like from horror films, I think that that combined with just the, I'm not saying they wouldn't get a chuckle at some things, or I'm not saying that they wouldn't for, oh, yeah. uh, laugh at some of the outlandishness of some of the things, but I really believe they would roll with it. I think an audience I think they would may get well. into this film. Um, I think I, they I, I've, been, I've been in the audience a few times at some midnight showings or some mm-hmm. festival screenings mm-hmm. with uh, older horror films, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of things like The Exorcist and The Beyond, mm-hmm. where I'm watching it with a, with, a, with a modern audience decades after these films came out, and there's there's that resistance at the beginning of the film. I'll never forget yeah. watching The Exorcist with right. a crowd a few years ago, mm-hmm. and um, them being really rowdy and noisy and and talking a lot of crap as mm-hmm. as the film began because that mm-hmm. because of the way yeah. the film starts off rather slowly. Sure. But then, as a friend sitting next to me said, "Don't worry, The Exorcist is going to shut these people up." Yeah. And it he did. was right. It that does. film yeah. slammed those people into a seat and shut them up as mm-hmm. they sat there gape-eyed at what mm-hmm. was going on. Mm-hmm. The same thing with The Beyond. Mm-hmm. As outlandish and bizarre as The Beyond is, that film has a power to just punch an audience in yeah. the in the stomach and make them sit there and either race mm-hmm. away from it or yeah. just kind of yeah. deal with it as it comes. Yeah. And I think Horror Rises from the Tomb, although not nearly as strong as either of those no, films no. Ha- would have that same capability I okay, think you're yeah. right I think a modern audience could put their hands around this thing mm-hmm. and enjoy it yeah um, so. I agree and the other, other thing I uh, wanted to bring up just as something to think about and, and uh, it's just kind of interesting to me uh, that this period in Nash's career uh, like I said we haven't totally determined whether this is a 72 or 72 three film so I'm kind of thinking of the two years together 72 and 73 it was. It's interesting to me just to rattle off this. Uh, it's an amazing period in his career uh, as we uh, as we go on through these films. It'll be interesting to see. At this point, right now, I feel like it, it could possibly be his creative peak. I mean, not uh, as far as just 
quality of work over a series of films. Yeah, uh, we may find that changing as we all look at these. Uh, but just uh, just to list uh, these films that he made in addition to Horror Rises from the Tomb over these two years: Vengeance of the Zombies, Count Dracula's Great Love, Hunchback of the Morgue, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, and Curse of the Devil. Yeah, and, uh, that's that's quite a. Uh, yeah, and those were kind of back to back. I think that was kind of a, a string. They were. It was a string of films other, not, yeah. that not only did he act in, but on every one of them, he was either the screenwriter or co-screenwriter. So it's a it's a pretty amazing uh, period in, in his in his. Not career. a not a dud in any in, in right. that entire in that entire run, in my opinion. I think he made some phenomenal films there. Uh, I'm especially fond of uh, Hunchback of the Morgue, but. Mm. Yeah, he was at a, a possibly yeah. I think you could call this a part of his creative peak. This was one of those films where he was just firing on all cylinders and everything was clicking into place, and he was able to make the films he wanted to make. Yeah. And just and as I said earlier, <clears throat> whereas this may have been the first film I saw with the horror film with the true seventy sensibility, it was probably also the first one that I saw that really did not play by the rules. You know, as as yeah. as much as what I was used to or had seen up to that point. So. All right. All right. Well. um... I think that wraps it up. Um, I guess we'll uh, sign off now and head on head mm-hmm. head to the house. Mm-hmm. Everybody, thank you very much. Next month, yes, we'll and bring thank you, you, everybody who listened to the first one we did. Oh, I yeah. want to say thank yeah. you for the the, the feedback, thank you for the, the kind words, and it was and for listening and all that. It was when you do something like this, obviously we did it for the fun and the love of it. You're never really sure how many people <laughs> are going to listen to something that's sort of the definition of a specialized uh, uh, market niche, uh, yeah. the Nashy niche. But uh, we really appreciate everybody who listened and, and all your feedback. Thank you very much. Yes, definitely. Thank it. Thanks to everyone who's uh, who's listened and enjoyed it and given us uh, some feedback on what we've done right and what we've done wrong. It's it's been very heartening. Uh, next time, next month, we'll be doing uh, a harder to see Nashy film, one that does not have uh, a DVD release, at least in North America. We're going to do uh, Night of the Howling Beast, which has several of the titles, but we'll get to that then. Uh, so if you're following along at home and can get your hands on a copy. Next month, it's Night of the Howling Beast. So, this is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we're signing off, saying thank you once again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.